radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 684. I'm Jim McDowell. With me from the UK, as always, my counterpart, Richard Jewitt. Rich, it's late over there tonight. How are you doing? Yeah, we're pretty good, thanks, Jim. Uh, we're in the eye of the storm in the UK at the moment. we got some pretty rough weather hitting us tonight, but um, lots of motorbike news to talk about. So, yeah, excited to get into the show. Yeah, yeah, this one's all about testing and some other little news tidbits that we got. And there's even another interview Rich has got for us for this one. So it's another going to be another long show. So everybody tuck in, as you Brits would say, grab a cold beverage and enjoy this one. And if you guys do like the show, please go to iTunes, leave us a review, make it a good review. That way more people will find us. We'll be at the top of the algorithm. And if you can... Help us out. We would greatly appreciate it. Every little bit you can donate to the show helps. There are uh, PayTal and Patreon links that are on our website, www.motopodcast.com. You can donate for as little as $2 a month on a subscription. And as a bonus, everybody who subscribes gets access to roundtable meetings that Rich and I are having with all the fans and any meetups, uh, other things that we have. And any other off-the-wall ideas that Rich and I come up with, our subscribers do get something a little bit different than uh, regular people who just listen to the show. With that, Rich, I think we will just jump right into it. And the first piece of news that we have is sad news. And this came to us from Joshua Tutels, so he is a subscriber. Thank you, Joshua, for letting us know about this because both Rich and I had missed this. But the 2017 AMA Superstock Champion, Jason Aguilar, has died as a result of a mountain biking training accident that he uh, was in. So terrible news on that front, uh, considering we've now just haven't even really got to racing so far this year and have lost two young riders so far. And these are just training accidents that apparently both of them are. And I, I think both were on push bikes, Rich, to be honest with you. it's mm. So it's just absolutely super crazy out there right now. So... With that, um, so our deepest thoughts and prayers go out to Jason's family, his friends, the other races that knew him, and especially to Joshua, because I think his mom uh, was doing some photography of him and became really, really close to Jason as well. So our thoughts go out to everybody who knew Jason. Yeah. Okay, guys, let's talk some really more fun things. Although maybe this is kind of sad, depends on how you look at it. Matt Oxley tweeted out that John McGinnis is thinking and probably will retire after this year's Isle of Man TT. The legend is going to step down. Rich, what do you think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky one. John McGinnis has been around for so long, hasn't he? And he's had such a stellar career on the roads. But, you know, all good things must come to an end eventually. And... In the case of John McGuinness, I mean, he's not a guy that's going to disappear into the background in terms of the motorbike racing world. Let's let's be honest. I'm sure he has uh, plans beyond riding. I think if he can have a, a good, solid TT this year, assuming that event does go ahead, which it looks as if it is going to do, thank, thankfully, after a couple of years away. On the other side of that, if he hangs up his helmet and his leathers, I, I think we'll all breathe a sigh of relief on a majestic career massive achievements that he's made he was uh honored uh, well I, I believe he will say that he was honored to have picked up a, an mbe from the queen 
just in the last couple of days, I believe. So for people that don't know, that's a member of the Order of the British Empire. It's a slightly old fashioned and anachronistic um what would be the word uh, system i suppose you, you could say but it's nevertheless it's still a a major honor to have been awarded that so and and richly deserved i would say in his case so yeah let's let's just hope that john has a a great tt this year and any of the other bits and bobs of road racing that he's going to do i'm assuming he'll be at the northwest 200 for example probably because i believe that event is going ahead as well um yeah, and hopefully we'll be able to catch up with John at some point on the show because I know we both got plans to try and track him down and get him on for an interview at some stage. That's right. We're hunting down John McGuinness. Somebody has to, so it might as well be us, right? Yeah. John's yep. John is. How do I say this? I I will breathe a sigh of relief when John steps away. Um, the 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 sport, the road rate, the ro- real roads racing, as Jim Race used to say, that has taken far too many people who who were deserved champions who were legends and we've never got to be able to honor them in any way shape or form um you know there's you know just to look at how joey dunlap had passed you know racing i think that was what estonia i think he Mm -hmm. crashed there i believe years and years ago and it's one of those things where like you know how great would it have been to have maybe joey in the pits or the paddock or on the line at um was it glen country road what's the first road sickling country yeah they come down Glen country road right mm, yeah. have him there on the start with everybody and talk to him because he knew what everybody was feeling and so there's that insight that you would have and i hope john does some tv for with the tt i i think he'd be absolutely brilliant at it just because he's been there done it so many times he could clue us into that insight that inner working of what everybody's going to about how you know really why do these guys get so quiet get so focused there's no i mean if you look at some of the moto gp guys they're kind of loose carefree it's a, a more upbeat kind of thing and the tt is is that way too from what i see i've never personally been but just the television coverage but there's a point when five minutes to go or whatever it just seems to get i don't want to say that word but it gets very very quiet i think you know what i was going to say i don't want to do Mm. that um it's tense it's tense it's really tense i mean there's there's thousand yard stairs going down on some of these guys and uh I, i just feel like john could really really bring something to that coverage and I, you know, I think John's a fantastic character anyway. So, I mean, stories, mm. things like that. I mean, if you got him and, uh, oh, crush, I can't think of his name. The, uh, dark hair. He was an old time racer. Him and Widom used to do it together. Ah, uh, who is it? I have my picture with him. I can't think of his name. Stavros. Isn't Stavros? Oh, it yeah, yeah, yeah. Stavros. Stavros. Um, Oh, golly. we're gonna to have to edit this part. Yeah, that, to, somebody's um, gonna to have to figure it out for us. Well, no, no, Steve Parrish. Steve Parrish. Steve that's Parrish. It. I, yeah. So yeah, I think Stavros is like his Twitter handle or something, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, right. so good, good, good one there. But I mean, just the, him and McGinnis, I think, would just be hilarious together because they would just be telling stories, and it would be perfect for me. So anyway, yeah. the legend's gonna stop. So I, you know, fair play to him. A magnificent career. So. Um, with that, I think we'll just start talking about testing and all everything that was around testing for yeah. MotoGP. They were they were at the Mandalika circuit in Indonesia. 
And <laughs> there is a lot to talk about just with the circuit. So <laughs> we'll start there. They showed up and the circuit was incredibly dirty. Now, this is due to a lot of construction that is going on around the circuit there. And this, I don't know, this reminds me of the track they had in South Korea that Formula One went to a couple of years. And Pion, I don't know where it was. I can't remember. But it was the idea yeah. was the track was a city-like race circuit. And they were going to build all these like condos and everything else around it. And it was going to be this racetrack that had a city inside of it, so to speak. And from the views, the pictures, some of the TV I saw of Mandalika, I think they're trying to do sort of the same thing. Sort of mm. have a, this street-like circuit in, around it by these rich people condos and you know haves and have-nots you know watching and sipping champagne while cars and bikes and all whiz by so they compulsory it was compulsory to make 20 laps on your bike to clean the surface of the track to have a quote racing line which absolutely i think pissed everybody off would you not say yeah yeah it's it's a bit I don't want to stray onto too dodgy ground, really, with some of my views on this, but you, you know, not, and it's not just MotoGP and and Dorna that are guilty of this, but there is. Uh, I mean, you you mentioned the the South Korean track from a few years ago, which never really came to anything. I think they raced there for two, maybe three years maximum. And as you say, it does seem like a very similar scenario here, where they've built, to all intents and purposes, quite a decent racetrack facility but everything else that would need to go with it in terms of the local road infrastructure places to stay places to hang out in the evenings and so on none of that stuff is really there yet um i've certainly seen some footage um i think it was uh simon patterson is it that kind of did a video diary riding in on a moped from his hotel which was kind of 10 miles down the road and he's literally riding down kind of dust tracks for the first five miles and then he gets onto a, a moderately reasonable road but most of the rest of the stuff is under construction still so there is without being wanting to be too sort of un-PC about this I think there is a feeling that it's a bit early for MotoGP to be going there really because none of this other stuff is is there yet really to support what from what I understand is potentially uh, and, and accepting that things are a little bit constrained possibly still this year because of COVID, but this venue can hold somewhere up to around about 150,000 people. That sounds like a bit of a stretch in terms of the facilities there. And that's before we even start to talk about what's going on with the, we call it tarmac, you'll call it asphalt probably, but um, you know, the actual surface of the track itself has literally thrown up some problems over the weekend that we've just seen. So I guess that's something we need to address as part of the next kind of topic oh yeah so i think who was it um was it a she was like absolutely livid that you shouldn't we shouldn't be running 20 laps around here to clean the track and it was it reflected poorly on the track the circuit and all that and you know i don't remember it being that dirty when world superbike went there you know so it's like oh okay well you're doing construction okay i'm kind of with you but if you were doing the construction, I would think that the motoring body would know that you were doing the construction, so you would have not gone there. You know, I mean, there obviously wasn't a lot of places that they could go that would be 
in that Far East region. They did Sepang for a couple of days, and they, I know you want to go to a different track to test your bike, but where else could they have gone? I, there isn't really anywhere else in that part of the world to go. I still think it's difficult to get into and out of Australia, I believe. Hmm. So that yeah. would have been tricky. I mean, most people would have said, well, yeah, let's go to the island and test or something like that. Well, that obviously wasn't going to happen. And Europe is too far away for the Japanese factories. They want to be closer. So a bit tricky. I mean, I guess you could have went to Motegi maybe. I, I don't know. but I, I think the thing is that Southeast Asia, we've said numerous times on recent episodes, certainly, you know, that this Southeast Asian market, in terms of the sort of the, the still quite developing parts of Southeast Asia, is a is a colossal market, particularly for the Japanese factories, in terms of probably smaller bike sales. So it's quite understandable that they would want to go there. But I mean, I remember when the Mandalika circuit was first being muted, some eyebrows were raised as to its location because it is very, very remote. Uh, I mean, it's kind of an island. Much of that area is kind of lots of small outcrops of land, but it really is quite isolated. There's a lot of construction work going on there still, and that will go on for presumably several years in terms of building hotels and all the various other paraphernalia that you need in support of a big circuit. So there's quite a lot of dust, for want of a better term, associated with that work. It's also a quite an active geological area in terms of quite a lot of volcanoes locally, which are continually spewing stuff into the atmosphere. And obviously that settles uh, ultimately, and it's on the coast. So you've got literally within a mile beaches and, and onshore winds blowing sand and dust inland so you've got kind of several factors at the moment which are conspiring to make the track surface itself quite dirty i think it was not quite such an issue when the world superbikes turned up there in what was it october november last year because the track had literally just been lane so I hadn't really had a lot of time to get really dirty. And that weekend as a race event was quite wet as well. So the weather kind of masked potentially some of these problems allied to the fact that the World Superbikes, which are tremendously powerful machines, it's true, but they're not MotoGP bikes. So I think what we saw over the course of this last weekend was the MotoGP bikes with the amount of sheer amount of torque that these things generate and and again, I'm going to choose my words slightly cautiously here because we don't want to get sued by anybody, but some suggestions that the grade of aggregate that was used in the formulation of the tarmac. So tarmac is basically bitumen, oil-based resins and tars, and then stones. And there is a grading of the stones in terms of their hardness, which presumably was part of the specification for the build of the of the track layout or the, or the asphalt itself material and as we always caveat i mean we're not tapped into the actual paddock itself we read and we listen to other people that have, have been there or, or are clued in on these things and there is a suggestion that the the stone the chip material let's say is too soft and so with the the pounding that the motor gp bikes give this material it's causing these stones which are too soft to basically to shatter and then the surface starts to lift and this is why we've seen pictures of Peko Banyaya for example who's been hit in the arm bearing in mind he's got a full leather suit on by a piece of flying debris that's come up and you know he's 
it almost looks like as if he's got a hole in his arm, doesn't it? It's a terrible bruise and a, and a cut where this this piece of fragment of stone has been flicked up from a deteriorating surface and hit him. So this is clearly a big problem. And bearing in mind in testing, bikes, not always, but predominantly they're going around single file, let's say. If we consider in four weeks' time when you've got big packs of bike riding around uh, on a deteriorating surface that's lifting and stones and so on being thrown up, then you can imagine what that's going to do in terms of hold radiators, you know, broken bits of this and that. Never mind if it's hitting people in the visors and on soft parts of their anatomy, even though they've got leather suits on and so on. But we've seen that that's no protection uh, in terms of what we've seen with Peko Banyar, as I say. So... The upshot of all of this is that with people like Alicia Spargro, as you say, Jim, complaining that this is not acceptable, as of today, I've heard that the Mandalika circuit have been told by Dorna that they need to resurface from turns one through five, which is, let's say, a third of the track. And they've basically got four weeks to do this in an area that's very, very remote. So, I mean, for me, question marks as to whether they can actually get that done. So there's lots of issues to unpack in all, all of that. I've been studying this quite carefully today to try and make sure I'm not, you know, talking nonsense or going too left field in terms of the comments and inviting too much criticism in terms of what we're saying. But those would appear to be the, the broad sort of facts of the matter at the moment. So it's a great circuit. I mean, as I said, when we reviewed the World Superbike race uh, last year, it's a great track. There's some challenging corners there. It's quite fast. I don't know that it's necessarily technically that difficult a track for, for the riders to learn and so on. But it looks like a good venue, but there are some serious question marks about its viability and whether or not Dorna has overcommitted itself in going to this track so early, uh, given that it doesn't have any of the other infrastructure built up in and around it. And there are some quality issues with the venue itself, particularly the track surface. Yeah, there's a lot in that, Rich, that's for sure. So let's back mm. up to, to Pecco and the big bruise that was on his arm. I, I can sympathize with him because I get to tell the story of how I got those bruises one time. So we used to go to, when I was racing some club, we would go to a track to the west of Indianapolis. It was called Putnam Park. And they used to run all kinds of Formula cars because the Indy cars were there. So you had, like, Ganassi's team was there. And there's several other teams that would have, like, IMSA cars, you know, the Le Mans-type cars and big GT cars. They would go to this track and they would run them around. Well, it had worn itself in to where if you put your hand on it, the, the bitumen was gone. It was just aggregate that was there and it was like sharp stones. So it felt like, you know, raking your hand across a meat grater, a uh, cheese grater, so to speak, mm-hmm. when we first started going there. And uh, it would just, oh, it would just roach a set of tires. It would just tear them up. And just It was like you had a set and they were going to be done. Like, I mean, done, done by the end of the weekend. They were just horrible. So we went there as a, to race one weekend, and they had started the prepping for the repaving of the track. And they, I can't remember if they had, they had like ground it or whatever. And so we were just going to race sort of like as on the more polished part of it. But there was all these loose little debris of rocks and particles everywhere, and they would smash off of you. And I'm telling you, at 100 plus miles an hour, a couple of them would hit my shoulder or my arms. It would sting so bad that it would your mind doesn't block it out. It reacts as like, ow, that hurt. And you, you can see guys like sort of flinch as they went down the straight because you're getting 
pelted by these things. And it was, you know, the one thing that re resonates, and I can still hear it in my mind, is the sound of a stone going off my face shield. And it sounded like a ricochet of a bullet when it left. And, of course, there's a yeah. deep scar in the, in the shield. And you're just thinking, God, what, what happens if this thing comes through? You could lose an eye, whatever. And I remember, I think it was right around the time they were talking about Indy cars and how the face shields for an Indy car driver have to be able to withstand like a 22 caliber bullet. I'm thinking, I don't know if the, I love my Arai helmet, but I don't know if this is <laughs> if this is going to stop this stone or not. So I would take off my leathers, and I'd have like all up and down my forearms, my shoulders, just all these bruises. Maybe not as severe as Becca's, but I can I sympathize with you in that situation. Now, as far as I'm getting this done, that repaving in four weeks, one, you can make anything happen if you have enough money and enough people. So. I'm sure they have enough people that I'm pretty positive of. Do they have enough money? I don't know who's bankrolling that. If it's the government, and the government is pushing to have this, as most tracks are built with government funds, then yeah, there's sort of an endless pit there of cash to make this happen. As a sidebar, Coda is all repaved and done. They're rerunning again, and they, they're... Prep took them like a couple of weeks to do all their ground radar penetration stuff that they would need to do. And it took them like another three to four weeks to do the concrete work, the paving, and they may be paving a much bigger section of track than, say, what Mandalika is. But I mm, don't know if they're going to be able to go to that. And from, I think it's just going to get, I think it's just going to get canceled. I just think it's just going to say, no, we're not going to go. And they're not going to try to do it in October because that, that would be like back to back to back to back of races that nobody wants to do. I'm kind of with you. I, I, you do wonder at this point whether or not it's a viable thing to go ahead, given the problems with the track. And as I think part of the problem or the particular part of the problem with the Mandalika circuit is that it is, as I said earlier, it, it is a quite a remote location. I mean, if you Google map it, I mean, it's so so getting the materials there, as you say, I'm sure labor is not not a great issue. But four weeks is not a lot of time to do major rework like that. And there's no guarantee that once they've done it, that it will necessarily be up to standard. And so I, I just think I hope I mean, I don't want to be a sort of doomsday monger. We, we want a good race there because it will be a good race at that circuit because it's, it's a good venue and the track itself. As I said, from the World Superbike race last year, it looks looks solid, but you do just rather get this impression that sometimes the the commercial commercial imperatives of the sport overtake the practical logistical kind of realities of the world. I I find sometimes, and you have great venues elsewhere in the world, some of which are already in South East Asia for that matter, and they get overlooked for these kind of I don't want to call it a white elephant, but do you know what I mean? It's sometimes you just think, well, sometimes you've got to learn to walk before you can run, and you just worry that a little bit that this might blow up in Dorna's face on this occasion. I hope it doesn't. But on the back of the test, which was an interesting test, which we're going to come on to in a minute in terms of what the respective factories were able to do there, and there's some interesting talking points that have come from that. But it was very much overshadowed by the fact that the main talking point at the end of the three days was 
the track surface, which is a shame. Yeah, it shouldn't have been that way, but that's just where we are. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about what actually happened on track. This is we're now talking about the track. Oh, and one thing. You know, if they knew the construction was going on, why didn't they go to Thailand and just tested Thailand? I mean, I don't yeah. think they're that far away from each other, but my geography of Southeast Asia is terrible, as most Americans is. But anyway, what happened on track? The one thing that I'll take from this is how HRC did. They're sort of like my shining light of what happened. They kind of came to the forefront. Uh, a pole was very quick on the bike, super happy about the bike, really felt good with the bike. He was just ecstatic with it. It seems like they have a baseline. They have a good place to start from. The engine's good. And I think that the bike is actually really good because if you looked at a lot of the pictures and video that came out of the race, you saw Marquez on the front end with the back end about six inches off the ground just going into the corners, which I haven't seen Marquez ride like that on the Michelin front at all. And so that had to be like 2013 or 2014, 2015 is like the last time you saw Marquez carrying it that deep and being in that kind of a position. You know, he did have a crash. He did hurt his arm a little bit on his shoulder. That seems to have survived. So if he knows that he can crash and get away with it, he may not ride as tentative, which, okay, that's going to be really good because I think Ducati still has a superior bike, I believe. But I don't think the Honda's that far off, and I think there's just too much determination to win in Marquez's corner that he's just going to go, you know, take the brain out and just go race. And he, I think he has a weapon to run with it. From what I've gathered, uh, and I did try to take note of the times, uh, part of my Dorna package when I renewed at the end of last year was that they threw in the timing pass. So I was kind of waking up at nine o'clock or eight o'clock in the morning here in the UK and... It was just kind of like the last 60 minutes of uh, time practice or testing at Mandalika. So I, my, most of my wife's uh, annoyance, I was sat in bed for an hour just watching my, my iPhone with the, the timing screen going. And, oh, look, um, Quattro has just put in a sector one, a red, a red sector. So I'm, I'm terribly sad in that way. But I think the takeaway with regards to Honda is that all of the, all of the riders seem to be happy as opposed to the last few years where one rider has been quite happy and everybody else has been scratching their head saying, I can't ride this bloody thing. I think Paul Spargro was, was quoted as saying he's delighted to have been reunited with his back brake because last year's Honda, he, it was so on the front, you know, he just, there was no point even touching the rear brake. Whereas now with the rear bias becoming, I'd say more to the fore, more to the rear, <laughs> I suppose is what we should say, but he's able to, you know, use the rear brake again as part of his strategy for, for riding the bike. And, I mean, he has come out of the two test uh, sessions in terms of Sepang and then Mandalika looking like a man reborn in a way. He was fastest overall at the end of Mandalika. We always have to take testing with a bit of a pinch of salt because you don't really know what everybody's up to. But he looks very, very determined. And I think down in LCR... Nakagami and Alex uh, Marquez are looking pretty happy as well. And it does rather strike me from a historical point of view uh, as being a little bit like the RC21 or 211V, you know, when Honda rock, rocked up 
when the four-stroke era got going with a bike that was out of the box, very, very strong. And they've clearly done their homework on this bike. They've obviously been working on this for quite some time. I think knowing that the Marquez era was not everlasting, which of course it's not, but perhaps that was brought into sharper focus with the injury and the potential that he would be out for a long time, if not permanently, which thankfully is, has not proven to be the case. But that looks like a weapon. And I, I think everybody else, even Ducati, might just be having a few sleepless nights over the Honda. And that will be great. I mean, particularly if all four riders can, can you know, can be regularly fighting in the top 10, which at the moment looks like it could be the case. I don't know if Ducati is concerned, but I do think they have cast a glance over their shoulder at the wizardry that Marquez could potentially bring here. I mm. I think that Gigi Delinia, as much as I love all this technical wizardry gizmos and whatnot, and they do probably have the best bike, I'm not so sure they have the best rider on the track. I do believe that Marquez is still head and shoulders above everybody else, but they're catching him. Now, is it age? Is it determination of the other guys just to get there? Is it Mark's injuries? Don't know. But I still rate Marquez as the best man to throw a leg over a MotoGP bike, just with the talent that he has. And, mm. you know, Maybe he has also learned now to know what to ask for in a bike to help him to go faster. I think there was times when he was in 2013, 2014, 2015, he was just fast. And I don't think he knew why he was fast. It just, it worked. And okay, uh, I'll use an American thing. There was a movie called Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise. And he's about a guy that could drive a race car. Well, he didn't know how to set up a car, but he could just drive. And I kind of got that impression with Marquez. He just, he just rode and, yeah. you know, okay. But at some point you've, you have to learn that you need a little more rebound or you need some more compression or, Hey, we need to shorten the swing arm slightly, or we need to pull the front end in or lengthen it or take whatever, whatever it is that we're going to do, right? Stiffer springs, lighter springs, all that kind of stuff. So very interesting there. I was very upbeat. I'm very happy. I was scared that the new honda would not be competitive you know it would take them you know i've seen them build bikes where it's like yeah that's going to take us half a year to three quarters of a year to get it right oh and then once it becomes right it's magical i give you the 800 honda which mm. when it came out that bike was bad bad still bad really bad yeah. and only at the very end did progress finally sort of get around it and win and make the bike competitive Anyway, good to see that part of it. Now, since we talked about Ducati, let's sort of move to them. Functional test, I think. Everybody doing what they were on to. Testing gizmos, wizardry, and science experiments. Um, I'm sure DG Jelena had some DOE table on the on the back pit wall that we weren't privy to. And they were going to do, Bagnetti was going to do this and this, 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 and this order. And we're going to figure out all of our settings of what we're going to do, not do etc i think the boys there were definitely quick they're definitely going to be at the front i think that it's what it's ben yaya um martin are probably the two fastest somewhere zarko slots in there and miller take it i don't know pick your day either one yeah. of them would be third fastest ducati and then after that you've got all the other Grassini bikes and whatnot, take your pick in some order, but they all are fast. They're all quick. 
and it's going to be interesting to see what they do. Marini was third quickest over the on the aggregate over the weekend as well. So, but again, you don't, with a new track, it's it's a little bit difficult to judge, and given some of the issues with the track, it's it's even harder to judge in this particular case. But yeah, I, I'd go with you really on that, Jim. I think Ducati were just sort of solidly working away on stuff with the GP22. And the GP21s maybe didn't quite show the form that they showed at Sepang, but it's a new track, so you've got no baseline data to work from, plus a lot of rookies uh, riding some of those bikes. So a little bit hard to really determine where they are, but I, I'm pretty confident that we can say that when we get to kind of Q2 at Qatar in a few weeks' time, there's going to be a, a decent number of Ducatis <laughs> in, that, in that group. Well, I think what's scary is that you could look at Q2 and I think you could easily see, so so what was there, 10, 12, was it 12, or 12 riders go into Q2? Yeah. You could easily see four Hondas, very very easily, as, as well as the bike has shown, there could be four Hondas in that group. That leaves us eight mm-hmm. bikes. I figured then you probably could have f- easily four Ducatis in there. So there's eight bikes there. And you've got four left that could be Mir, Renz, Quattraro, and throw another Ducati in there. That's yeah. how it's looking. It's looking like you could conceivably have the first three rows of that grid be nothing other than a Honda and a, a Honda and a Ducati, which is you know I think good in the respect that we didn't want Ducati to run off of this, and I think Honda has brought a weapon to it to be sure that hey this is not going to happen on our watch Mm. but can suzuki run with everybody i'm not sure and you know yamaha and all that but let's take them later i'll let you if you have anything else for ducati before i I go to the next point on ducati no it was a little bit of a quiet test for ducati in a lot of ways as as we've just said but i don't think in a negative sense i think they were just there were certain factors maybe that masked the speed of some of those bikes and they were busy working away on stuff i mean i think one of the things i heard was that they've concluded that uh, and i'm from a, a aesthetic point of view i'm quite pleased about this that it would appear that they've ditched the long exhaust on the gp22 i think they've gone back to the stubby exhaust in terms of the sort of the the delivery of the power so I'm quite pleased about that because I didn't like the look of that. I mean, the, as, as I said last week, controversially, the Ducatis are uh, an abhorrent <laughs> thing to look at as it is. And that that long exhaust just made it even worse to my eyes, at least. And it's obviously beauty in the eye of the beholder. But um, so they were, they were working through lots of different stuff. Um, but I think we can be pretty confident that they're, they're going to be super, super strong when we arrive at Qatar in, what is it, three, four weeks time? Something like that, yes. One last thing with Ducati for me is it came out that Ducati, to no one's surprise, has now shape-shifted the front, the back, the side, the left, the right, whatever, take it. They've done all the technical gizmos, and now people are upset. And so now now Ducati is mad because they've done all the research, and they've made their bike fast. And everybody else is like, uh, no, that's not what we're going to do here, or we don't like it. The problem is that it's the what the i the msa the motorcycle sporting manufacturer msma motorcycle sporting motorcycle manufacturing association mm. and they're making the rules up which okay 
that's like giving the keys to the asylum to the inmates, right? Yes. <laughs> Not really yeah. a good idea. And Matt Oxley has a great article in Motorsports Magazine about this. If you want more detail in it, but we're trying to stay to- uh, 30,000 feet here on it. But what it comes down to is that the rules all have to be agreed upon unanimously. Okay, so let's ban shapeshifter bikes. Well, guess what? There's somebody who's going to say no. <laughs> I think we know who that yeah. is. Mm. I think there's I think there's the people who are dead set against it. I give you Aprilia. I think they're dead set. I don't think they want to spend that money. I don't think Suzuki wants to spend that money. I don't think Yamaha wants to spend that money. So I think they don't care. I think they're like, no, we do not want it. Then I think there's the two people riding in the middle. That's KTM and Honda. I think they look at it as, well, if you really want to go down this road, we'll go there with you, but we kind of don't want to. But since it's in the rules, well, okay, you opened up the door, we're going to go kick it down, kind of a thing. And Mm. then there's Ducati that's vehemently opposed to having any of this sorcery. And you really need to read Matt Oxy's article because he he reads the technical regulations, and it's amazing that these things are actually a mechanically induced system with hydraulic pressure. It's there's no electronics in it, despite mm. what I may have thought or said. It's all done with physics, which is even more impressive <laughs> that it's done. And uh, you know, essentially, it shouldn't fail. But we do know that the whole shot device on Miller's bike stuck at Silverstone one year. So there are always, there's always a potential failure point. And it's like, is it safety? Is it money? Um, Somewhere, you know, this is going to get out of hand. In which way is it? Is it better to have a lot of bikes closer together to produce better racing? Or is it better to have one bike dominate because they've got a technical advantage? I don't know where to stand on that one because we have been spoiled over the last three years of some absolutely incredible racing. So what you have seems to be working. So I don't think Dorn is going to step in and change anything because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There are still people mm. flocking to the stands and wanting to watch. I mean, I think that what we're seeing is that and we don't really know quite what the front shapeshifter that Ducati are working on at the moment. And, we, and they may not race it. I mean, we don't know. I mean, it might just be something that they try and decide it's too complicated, too temperamental, whatever. But the signs are that the, the field is still massively closely packed. Now, we, we haven't arrived at a race weekend yet, so that's the, the, the pure acid test will come in a few weeks' time. I guess, and I don't know what the rules are. I mean, as you say, Jim, the, the Matt Oxley article is, is fascinating in terms of his insight into the, what the technical regulations actually say and how Ducati have interpreted that in a way that, may not be within the spirit of the rules, but it's, you know, to the letter of the law, they can do it. I guess, and what I don't know, and it would be interesting to have somebody like Matt to come, come onto the show and tell us, would be whether or not one of the other organising bodies that are in and around this, whether it be Earth or something like this, could step in from a safety perspective and say, actually, we don't want that. It's not safe. Therefore, this, you know, kind of unanimity amongst the teams around rules kind of gets vetoed on the grounds of safety. We've seen that happen in other forms of motorsport from time to time. But I don't know if that's allowable within the governance of the sport or not. I, I, as I said on the last show, I think it was, you know, I have a few concerns that with all these different 
separate rider operated systems there's a hell of a lot of work for these people to be doing in an extreme environment of work already so it does raise a few red flags around the safety of, of that never mind if the systems fail or don't work as anticipated so there are question marks about that but i suppose at the end of the day if you know if the honda's as good as we think it is suzuki have made strides Aprilia look very very strong ktm sleeping giant they look as if they're strong. It might well be that a front shape shifter or no, it might not be that it's the Ducati domination that we feared and hopefully it won't be. Uh, I agree with everything there. And since you mentioned KTM, let's talk about them. Yeah. What did we say at Sepang? We said, hey, KTM is working on something that's for the smaller track. They're not trying to do anything. They have a program and we yeah. thought that they would be fast at Mandalika and they were. Bender was yeah. the fastest the first day. And Oliveira was close behind there. Mm -hmm. It seems as though that they... Had, oh, and Bender had a very big smile on his face, if you had noticed. And they seem to have worked on finding the base setup. I think that they've got a point to start from, and now they move in a direction based on which way the track is. It's, you know, whatever. If it's tight and twisty, they know to go left in the settings if you will if it's a mm. faster track like Mugello, barcelona they sort of they sort of lean towards the right side settings or whatever they're doing and it's good to see and i think you i think you said it right they could be the sleeping giant because we know Oliveira is very good with that bike bender shows flashes of brilliance with the bike but he has he really had the bike under him that he wanted i think the bike is more suited to bender than it is to Oliveira, at least right now. So I do think Brad will be a little quicker, but it seems as though they've got to where they are able to put the heat into the rear tire much faster than they were before because Bender's sort of qualifying simulations would put him into Q2. They've kind of maybe solved that problem, which is a huge thing because we've always talked about Bender being a Sunday man. I don't and everybody's said that about him. He races better than he qualifies. I think they've done something with the fuel tank as well to try to help that distribution. If you look at the tank and the shape of the frame, it's very different in this bike than it is to last year's bike. So they may have moved that around some to help them. But they, again, I think they're like Ducati. Um, they had a program. They worked through that program. And they found what they wanted from that program. And they're going to go back, analyze, and be ready for Qatar. Yeah, I think they have kind of gone under the radar a little bit. They have snuck in there, that is for sure. Yeah, hence the sleeping giant kind of comment. But they just look solid. And that's, uh, it's almost damning with faint praise in a way. But, you know, Binder looked particularly fast. And Oliveira, as you say, wasn't too far behind. Raul Fernandez was having a good test at Mandalika until he had a big, big crash on the Saturday. There's another little tangential talking point that comes out of that, which we'll perhaps get into in a second. And I think Remy is still so kind of hindered by this wrist injury that's still not recovered, but he's kind of struggling to really extract the maximum or, or, or kind of learn his way around the new bike. But I mean, the other thing I think is worthy of note is that, and great credit to KTM on this in terms of the main works team, at least, is, you know, they're sticking by two riders for several seasons so it allows these guys to sort of learn their trade in a stable environment and I think although as I said in the last show Oliveira has tended to shade Binder in my eyes at least in terms of consistency of performance 
I think this season, both of them, if they can stay injury free, I just have a feeling that they're going to both have a very good season this this year. And whilst they didn't necessarily set the world on fire at Mandalika, there were glimpses of very, very solid pace there. But, but again, I mean, it's it's in a field of bikes that are so tight. I mean, bearing in mind this was a brand new track, nobody's ridden there before. I mean, even Darren Binder was, I think, only 1.8 seconds off and, and he was last. So, you know, the times are really, really tight. Uh, and in terms of the people that you would count as being, you know, the accepted front runners and the people that are likely to challenge, th- those guys are separated probably by less than a second. So it's, it's hard to get to the front in MotoGP, isn't it, these days? And certainly Binder looked look particularly strong. So uh, I think we can all be very pleased about that. I agree. They're, we won't know until they all get to Q1 in Qatar. Because now somebody's got to put their cards on the table and we'll finally see. But it is somewhat tantalizingly mouth-watering to think, wow, that Q2 could be two Hondas, two Ducatis, two Cowies. Or Cowies, KTM. Good grief. We wish. Yeah, we wish. We had that conversation. conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But... Uh, it's, I mean, it's good. So, give me, give me your tangential on Adrian's, Adrian Fernandez's crash. Yeah. So he oh, Raul's had a, not Adrian. Adrian's the Moto three guy. God, did it again. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't. I don't know that if it was caught on camera. If it was, I certainly didn't see it. But by all accounts, Raul Fernandez had a a, a proper kind of washing machine kind of <laughs> spin cycle crash on the Saturday. If you saw any pictures of him on Sunday morning, he's face was quite heavily bruised so he had clearly you know been chucked around big time and was cleared fit to ride by the doctors on the Sunday morning went out and did about six or seven laps I think and then pulled in because he was feeling nauseous and stuff and it did raise some alarm bells as to an ongoing problem in MotoGP with the on-site doctors passing riders fit to ride when perhaps judgment or good judgment would suggest that perhaps they should take a day off and rest up a little bit it's one thing you know if you're having a painkilling injection in a in a damaged wrist or something to get you through a race or so on i mean you you can argue the merits or otherwise of of that but when it comes to head concussions a lot of sports will, will bench you for a week or two weeks in that scenario and i think the view was that fernandez has had a big whack to the head and as I said his, his face was quite visibly bruised as a result of the crash that he had on the Saturday and therefore there was uh, a degree of incredulity incredulity oh, I can't say the word now incredulity is the word good try as to how it was that he got past fit to even go out on the bike on the Sunday so question marks around medical governance and some of the decisions that have been made for riders yeah that's um we we've been down this path <laughs> like several times. Uh, I I am all for a true concussion protocol, you know, in black and white. That if you can't pass a certain cognitive test, you are sitting. I, I don't care if your name is Valentino Rossi, Mark Marquez, or the rookie uh, Raúl Fernandez. You're sitting. Um, Again, the merits of a painkiller in your wrist or an ankle or something like that on a race weekend, 
okay, fine, I'll I'll give you. But the head thing, that's got to stop. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that these guys, I'll use this word in air quotes, heroes to us because they do things that we can't do. But I don't want them to do things that you can't do when you have a concussion uh, and you're not thinking properly. You're only going to make it worse. And you, you know, modern technology has allowed us to have airbags in the suits and all this other protection. And again, helmets have gone along and have gotten much better in that time as well because we understand what's happening to the brain and what's going on in there. But still, there's a limit. There's a physical limit to what the human body can take. And yeah, you can break some bones and blow cartilage out and different things. And doctors can put you back together again with pins and screws and plates. And you're going to have a normal life afterwards. But you you mess with the brain bucket, you're not going to be having a normal life later. Mm. I'd assume we just establish some baseline cognitively and let's not cross that baseline again let's be honest uh, i mean whether they're doing this or not i don't know but you know there's plenty of technology exists to measure you know g-forces that are going on during a crash and so on you know i don't know if they have sensors in say crash helmets for example but it wouldn't be that difficult to do i would think and i'm always reminded of, and I'm guessing it would have been 1994, around the time when we'd had the tragedy in Formula One with Senna. That was swiftly followed, as I recall, by a big crash for, I think it was Carl Wendlinger in Monaco, which put him into a coma. I think it was literally the next race on from the Senna uh, tragedy, at which point the FIA kind of stepped in. And I remember, although he was a somewhat of a controversial figure, it's true, but Max Mosley, who was in charge of the sport at that point, said something to the effect that it's, it's our job as a governing body to protect the drivers from themselves, by which he meant that you could put those guys in a car, if it was a second faster, but it would explode if it hit the barrier, they'd drive it because it's faster. You know, these guys will always get on, in a car, they will always get on a bike if you give them the opportunity to, but there has to be some red lines which determine whether or not that is a safe thing to do or not and as you say Jim I mean when you've got demonstrable head injuries going on it's just not acceptable to let a guy out and and the fact that he turned seven and it was seven laps because I remember seeing him on the timing chart because as I said I was waking up in the morning and getting all excited about watching the last hour of timing and I saw him right at the bottom of the timesheet you know seven laps done whereas everybody else had done like 60 70 80 laps at that point and so it was obvious that he'd had a crash but or or hadn't been able to to go on uh and that was the reason you know he just went out and he just couldn't ride the bike you know just cognitively or you know felt nauseous you know and so you think well how did he pass a medical check that morning because he must have gone through one having had a big crash the day before how was he allowed onto the bike so i mean it's perhaps something we'll return to a you know on another show but and we've got a talk coming up in a week or two's time hopefully with some guys that have written a book about the science of the rider's mind and you know how this whole thing swirls around in the, in the brains of the riders themselves and perhaps you know how you have to try and put some checks and balances in to manage and control that because left to their own devices these guys will you know they'll never stop so 
yeah, I mean, it's a talking point for another day, and perhaps some listeners will have some views on that that they can write in and tell us what they think about it. But I think that was a bit of a black mark uh, at the weekend. Yeah, it definitely. Um, let's try to finish up here. So we haven't been through. Let's go to Suzuki next. Mm-hmm. Again, I think they had a program. Uh, they worked through that program. Renz looks pretty good on the bike. He seems comfortable. Mir is a little more happy. I think he's found something that he likes. I do think that Suzuki is lacking compared to Honda, compared to uh, KTM, compared to Ducati. I don't see them as having a... I think Mir has the talent. I'm afraid he's going to have to, again, ride so hard to stay with the guys on those other three brands that he's going to become frustrated again. Hamamatsu has come up with something. It's better. I just don't think it's enough. If they have found a tenth, everybody else has found three tenths. And you're not going to get that back on the braking. So, um, Your thoughts on Suzuki? Because I know you're a Suzuki man. You got your Suzuki shirt on today. So Yeah. I'm a little bit more upbeat in my assessment oh, okay. than you are. But only a little bit. I mean, I caveat it that I think I do agree... I hear what you're saying and I don't necessarily disagree with that. I mean, Honda look unbelievably strong as do Ducati, uh, KTM. Maybe I haven't quite shown it, but as we just said, I think they are in a very good position. Suzuki have clearly made a step and I think it's quite telling that Alex Rins has had a couple of very, very good tests. He's been very, very quick on race runs. Uh, it, with testing, it's always a little bit easy to get blinded by single lap times. And we're going to talk about Yamaha in a moment. Suzuki have been putting in a lot of long runs on the medium tyres and they've been very consistent and fast. And they have obviously added some power to the bike, which was, I think, the thing that both Mir and Rins were complaining about last year. And as far as I'm concerned, was at least a big contributor to the problem that Rins was continually having, where he was trying to make up time on the brakes and kept crashing as a result of that. So I'm a little bit more upbeat and a little bit more hopeful I think possibly the new RGM on that. But again, you know, as, as, as we keep saying, Q2 is going to be a devilishly difficult session to get into. I think we can expect to see a, at least one Suzuki in Q2 in most of the races this year or race weekends. But we'll, we'll find out in a few weeks again. I mean, it's, it's so hard to, to really know. And this is the beauty of the, of, of the championship at the moment, I think, which is that there is no really clear rider or bike or team at the moment well i think we thought i certainly i thought going into the before the first test in sepang that this was just going to be a ducati kind of whitewash kind of scenario i'm now relieved to say that i'm i'm backtracking from that position and i think it's going to be much much tighter than that and hopefully it will vary from race track to racetrack as well because certain bikes will suit certain tracks more than others so I'm pretty confident Suzuki are going to be there. We didn't really see with, with Joanne Mia, a couple of members or several members of his crew went down with COVID on the Saturday. So he didn't have some of the support in the garage that he would have hoped to have had, which is just unfortunate. And then he himself missed the entirety of Sunday with food poisoning. So he actually only got in, and you could you can pretty much wipe off the first day anyway because the track was so dirty that nobody was really posting any useful times anyway. So, to all intents and purposes, Joe and Mia missed the test. 
Uh, Rins was solid throughout, however. So I, I think Suzuki are in a pretty good position, but as to whether they're close to Honda and Ducati is a little bit difficult to judge at the moment. So I'll say this, Suzuki is the best of the inline fours, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. And I can't remember if it was Quattraro or Mir who said, you are going to have to be on the first two rows to win a race in MotoGP. I can't remember which guy said it. So that begs the question, I think qualifying that Q1 session, only two guys are going to get out. Oh my gosh, is that going to be like a bar fight? It is going to be nice out to get yeah. in to that to have a chance to get the front, which how bad is that going to affect your race strategy? Because I don't think you're not getting an extra tire. So you, you, there's a whole strategy component of like, do you run a soft because, or is the soft the tire to have for the race? You, I mean, this is really going to get to where you're going to need supercomputer level diagnostics to figure out what you're going to do. I'm, I'm, mm. I'm fascinated to see how qualifying plays out. Cause I think it's going to be just, barn burningly good stuff yeah and was it you or skyler that said last year about you know everybody will have a uh an opportunity not to be in q2 this coming season it's almost inevitable yeah skyler did say that and skyler was correct it was everybody yeah. finally had it had a turn in q2 or q1 sure it's going to be the same this year totally going to be the same uh, you foreshadowed yamaha let us talk yamaha go you you start because obviously you you've got something to say about it so well uh, only really to and I, again without wishing to be sort of too doom mongery about things but if, if there were concerns at the end of the sepang test i don't think mandalika did anything to put any of those concerns to bed let's just put it that way yes on the timing sheets at the end of the third day quattro was second and i think he was about two hundredths off uh the time the, the fastest time but Again, I was listening to something that David Emmett was talking about today. And Quattro threw several soft tyres onto the bike to do that time. So I think the takeaway was that over a single lap, and we know that Quattro is, a, as I call it, time attack guy. We know he's super, super good on a, on a single lap, but single laps don't win races. So there's a, a conundrum now, which is that he, whilst he might, be able to get onto the first two rows it looks increasingly unlikely coming into this season that he'll be able to repeat what he was able to do so effectively last year which was to be on the front row and escape in the early part of the race so he looked and pretty much said to the press in as plain English as he could have possibly put it without really kind of getting the ire of Lynn Jarvis I'm on the market Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not happy. I'm not happy with this bike. It hasn't moved on. Everybody else is much further ahead than we are. That was basically what he said. Now, again, there's a bit of a change of thought process in my mind that's come about as a result of the last these two tests now, because you know the playing field. Whilst it's not entirely clear where the cards are falling, I think it's you know a few of the cards are now face up, and still a few of them are face down. So we don't quite know, but. I'm changing my mind on a couple of things okay. as a result of the, of the two tests. But I don't think Mandalika has done anything in my mind to change my view that Yamaha are in for a tough year. Morbidelli looked pretty good. And, and then Davizioso and, you know, 
well, Binder, again, you can't expect too much. But Yamaha do not look in good shape, which is a shame. But that is, appears, to my eyes at least, to be where they're at. So you had talked to uh, Gregory Haynes, and you he speculated that Quattrararo was going to Honda in that mm. interview. Uh, no, he will not. And that is because his passport is the wrong nation nationality. <laughs> uh, I'm, HRC is sponsored by Repsol. They are Spanish. They're a Spanish oil giant. They are paying the bill, and they will have two Spanish riders. Take it for what it is, and I think you know who the other Spanish rider is going to be. It's mm. not going to be Paul. My change of view i suppose has come about well two two things really uh, a reassessment of the ducati position given what we saw in sepang which uh, and it shouldn't have come necessarily have come as a huge surprise but martin we know is 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 a real prospect he's a future world champion yeah bastianini is raising eyebrows again and i've suspect will continue to do so through the year. So I think you could actually form the view. Whereas I was saying that I thought, you know, Ducati might just open the, the checkbook and bring somebody like Quattraro in. Perhaps they just don't need to. Maybe they're in a sort of a KTM situation where they've got so many good riders on the books. So perhaps they just don't need to, to take the risk on bringing somebody new in. And by the end of the Mandalika test, I'm starting to think Marquez is, quite clearly going to have a good year if he can stay fit and, and injury free. And I think we can start to see the reawakening of Polis Bargaro. And if he has anything resembling a strong year on that bike, I just wonder whether Honda would, again, why would they change? So I wonder whether Quattraro might end up being forced to stay at Yamaha. Mm, odd man out kind of a situation. Albeit for a much, much bigger salary, which he'll be in a position to demand. Hmm. That this is all going to play out somehow that we're not going to understand. There's there will be backdoor shenanigans, guarantees of different support, different things uh, there. Yeah, but it would be interesting to see how this pans out because this story is not going to to lay down and die. It is going to just keep <laughs> building. If Quattraro is say sixth at Qatar, it's just going to heat up even more. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's. Do you have Aprilia left to go, and then just a few news tidbits after that. So Aprilia, um, they're better. They look stronger. Um, they are in a process of much like a, uh, a rebuilding process, if you will. Right? They've they got this new mm-hmm. bike, and they're trying to figure out how to get the most out of the bike. Um, and they they're they're working towards that. There will be some surprises. I see a podium in Aprilia's future again. They did one. I think in maybe two are distinctly possible. Vinales has taken to the bike and has become much more comfortable with it in how he approaches and how he rides that motorcycle. It is a big change to go from an inline four to a V-configured one. So uh, for him to get himself around that, he seems happy. He seems like he's cuddled and you know made to feel like he's important and all that. I would not be surprised if we see Aleish with a podium and Vinyaz with a podium. They might be weather-induced things, but they could just simply come on and just have it right 
they, you know, they they find the secret to unlock the Michelin quicker than everybody else. Like one time, I think that's the real thing. Is like who is going to be able to consistently unlock the Michelin every weekend? And I think there's going to be hits and misses. And I think these guys are just going to come up and they're just going to roll the dice and it's going to it's going to turn and it's going to be you know seven for them. So uh, that's brilliant for me. For, for people, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will be in the same position that we are that listen to the Dorna feed. There, there's a guy that commentates on the Moto2 and Moto3 sessions, uh, certainly through the practice days and qualifying, called Neil Morrison. He's yeah, an yeah. Irish, Irish guy. I was listening to him talking earlier on today, and I'm pretty sure it was Neil Morrison. He had Vinales as a dark horse for the title. Whoa, which is no, a- no, 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 no. Well. Mm. I think he might turn a few heads. That I just I have a fe- <laughs> I have a feeling. Title contender, I think, is possibly stretching the bounds of credibility a little bit. But could he win a race on that bike? Okay, if he does, where would it be? That's the question. If he wins a race, my guess would be that they'd win at Aragon. That bike has always seemingly gone very well there, at least with the leash. Mm. I'm trying to think of like where Vinales has had very good races. And off the top of my head, I can't... Qatar is probably more of what I'm thinking. From the standpoint, it was on Yamaha. You get out front, you ride, corner speed, corner speed, corner speed, and it's there. Considering it's more point and squirt now, I would say maybe Saxon ring if it rained. Or, and, it, you know, and it was one of those things where it's just... He came for the tires at the right time. You know, Marquez leaves it one lap too late or something of that effect. Although I want to see Marquez break the record for like most wins successively <laughs> at mm. a track, to be honest. Um, a win. Oh, wow. would love to see it. Would love to see it. Love to see it because it'd be the apple cart being totally upset. Um, the stars are going to have to align for that to happen in my book. Podiums, Yes wins i'm going to say no hmm. i'm trying to think if i'm willing to put some money down on this one i, I think he's going to win a race this year you do. I just have a feeling yeah well, I, you can have feelings that's cool i just wondered because uh, as we mentioned on a, a few shows back I, I was so frustrated when vinales left suzuki because i thought he was just on the cusp of you know doing something really great at suzuki and then he kind of got tempted over to yamaha and okay he was had a pretty decent start with the Yamaha factory squad, but it never really came to any great fruition, did it? And I don't think, as we've said, I don't think terribly controversially before, I don't think they're necessarily regarded as one of the best teams when it comes to managing riders in the pit lane. Aprilia, I think, you know, he's in a more of a kind of what you might say, air quotes, family environment, and he's going to be kind of, to use your term, I think you said a few moments ago, cuddled and hugged in that team. He gets on quite well with the Spargo. And they're obviously going to be quite evenly matched, those two, which will push the development of the bike on even further. So I just have a little bit of a warm, fuzzy feeling inside with Vinales this year. And I, despite, you know, his meltdown and some of his behaviour, which I kind of understand in, in certain respects, I don't condone it at all. I thought he was petulant and stupid at times last year. But I'd really like to see him do well. And Again, he had a pretty solid couple of tests uh, in, you know, over the last couple of weeks. And that Aprilia does look good. I think the question mark with Aprilia, for me at least, 
will be can they continue to develop the bike through the through the season because it's such a sort of ferocious development race MotoGP these days but I just have a little feeling that if, if Vinales gets into the sweet spot with the bike and in his, between his ears, and it's probably the most important part of that equation, if, he, his, if his shoe potential can be unlocked, and as I said, I, for me, he was on the cusp of it at Suzuki, and then he kind of, in a way, threw it away. I just wonder if he can really turn some heads. I really hope that he does. And I'd be willing to stick, I don't know, 30 quid or whatever into the motor. Motopod pot. If I if I'm proven wrong, <laughs> so I'll, I'll make that bet. So we'll see. Hmm. But uh, yeah, Aprilia looking again, looking strong. But I mean, other than Yamaha, everybody looks strong. So it's so hard to judge and call. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Well, and even Yamaha are going to win some races. Let's let's be honest. Oh. I mean, it, it would be be very odd if they didn't win a couple of races this year. I don't see how Quattro can do that. Against the horde of Hondas and Ducatis, I, I can't, no. I think Yamaha's a podium's at best. Mm. I, I think a victory for Yamaha this year is not going to happen. That's inside my feeling, is Quattraro mm. is going to spend all this time and effort to qualify where he is, and he's just going to get motored by everybody else, and he's not going to be able to stay with it. I think Quattraro will crash more this year than he has in any year in, uh, in MotoGP. That is how I see it. One of the things that uh, David Emmett said on the podcast that I was listening to that he's involved with earlier on today was that uh, Quattraro said uh, on the back of the Mandalika test that the long runs that he was doing on the medium tyre, which is the tyre that they would normally race, was the worst he's ever felt on the bike. So that is a huge concern for Yamaha. But... I still, deep down, can't imagine a season going by without him winning at least a race. I, I, I hope, and again, this is a gauntlet that we'll throw down to ourselves to keep a, an eye on. Could this be the season when every manufacturer in MotoGP wins at least one race? Ooh, that's a good. We got to keep, yeah. I think it's possible. But you okay? Well, we'll see. <laughs> I thought Skyler was yeah. crazy when he said everybody was going to take a turn in Q1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know. All right. Well, I, that, uh, I think that's everything for... MotoGP testing. So let's move to a bit of BSB news. So Leon Haslam is back in BSB. I saw his Twitter where he announced it. He's with the Lee Hardy Racing Kawasaki, so he's back riding green again. I think that's good for you, isn't it, Rich? I mean, I know you're BSBing it all the time. Well, it's certainly great news for British Superbikes. Yes, I think um, when we were sort of speculating on this on the last show, I think the view was that he might come back to bsb or you might end up on one of the more kind of let's call them privateer teams in world superbike say pedicini kawasaki for example um but no i mean it's a it's a coup to have haslam back i mean he was the champion a few years ago so top line rider been on the honda in world superbike for the last couple of years toiling away and not having an awfully great time of it so i'm sure he'll find his feet back in bsb pretty quickly uh, so it's good news, very very good news for uh, for the British Superbike paddock. And a uh, little World Superbike uh, action. Alvaro Bautista looks pretty damn good on that Penegale. Uh, yeah. If you listen to the previous show, guys, and you stayed with it to the end for the 10 minutes update we got from Gregory Hines, um, he is super duper pumped 
that Bautista could potentially run for the title. Uh, I yeah. got to believe it's all possible there, and that's great for World Superbike. Ducati winning a World Superbike title and winning a MotoGP title would be pretty impressive. So yeah. uh, let's hope for that. The jury's out in terms of whether Scott Redding, who was obviously a front-running World Superbike last year, whether he'll be able to, at least initially at least, do the same on the B- uh, on the BMW, which he switched to for this coming season. But Bautista jumping back onto the Duke is almost inevitable that he's going to be up the front with Toprak and, and Johnny Ray. Um, yes, and I must just take this opportunity to say, you know, uh, an enormous thanks to, to Greg, who, you know, was very... Uh, gracious in giving me much more time than we thought we'd have in terms of the main interview and then uh, as you heard on his drive back from Portimao phoned in a a 10-minute review of what had happened over the the couple of days testing in Portimao so uh, up there for me in terms of uh, the competition for the nicest person in the world that I've ever met so generous with his time and inputs and you know just a super guy to talk to so uh, thank you Greg if you're listening to this next show uh, and he's said he'll come back on and we'll have a chat perhaps around mid-season time, perhaps early August when World Superbike hits the halfway point in the calendar. So we'll get a bit of an update and his thoughts on that. But uh, no, he was certainly on the back of the Portimao test, as you heard, raving about Bautista and how good he looks on that bike. And very interestingly, a, a point that I took away from what he said was that Rinaldi on the other side of that garage and Bautista are physically very very similar in terms of height and weight and so on so it gives Ducati a much clearer path to develop that bike whereas last year they had Reading who's very tall and although he's you know probably got 0.1% body fat <laughs> you know he's super super fit but physically much much bigger so they were kind of almost running two different teams within the box uh, last year so it gives them a, a kind of a clearer direction in terms of bike development and setup so yeah, Bautista, I think, is going to be uh, very, very strong this year. And all right, folks, the much ballyhooed and talked about MotoGP-style drive to survive that was going to be on Amazon Prime Video will launch in the UK, at least, on March 14th. I do not know for those fans that are in the US-based if that works. I have not had time to look for that. So I will try to update you in the next show when potentially the American fans will be able to watch this as well. Uh, hopefully it's like one of those things that comes out on a, uh, you know, Friday, it comes out on a Friday morning, which is, uh, you know, 12.01 a.m., which is like 7 o'clock for me in the U.S. with perfect prime time to sit and eat dinner and watch the behind-the-scenes <laughs> going-ons, but I don't think we're going to be that lucky with it. So I think that is the show, Rich. We are done here. Again, guys, if you got comments, feedback, please send it to MotoPodcast at... Um, I screwed that one up, didn't I, Rich? Motopod. Motopod at motopodcast.com. I could not spit that out, guys. You know what it is. You've heard me say it before. I just get tongue-tied sometimes. So for that, I want everybody to be out there. Stay safe. Ride safe. Um, With that, uh, we're going to go out and go to the Dave Neal interview that's going to be coming. And be sure you stay tuned. I'm sure it's going to be good. I haven't heard it, but I know it'll be good because I missed Dave on the show as well. And with that, everyone, Rich and I are out. Cheers, everyone. Hello, Motorpod listeners. Richard again. Now, we have another ride down memory lane today because having harassed and cajoled Martin Darlington back onto the show a couple of weeks ago, I felt it only right and proper to track down his erstwhile partner in podding and crime, Mr. Dave Neal. Dave, 
It's fantastic to get you back onto the Motopod show. As you know, we had a great response following Martin's appearance the other week. And I know that regulars are going to love to hear from you again. So whereabouts do we find you on this glorious February day? Well, first of all, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be back on the show. Cutting my teeth on Motopod from 2013 and doing however many episodes we did over the years, it's a real pleasure to be on. So thanks for inviting me back on, Rich. One thing that I will say is uh, the word count will be an awful lot less than those of uh, the good Lord Darlington last week. Slightly less of an editing uphill challenge from my point of view, I suspect. I think so. <laughs> As it was previously on Motopod, I'm, I'm secreted away in the wilds of East Lancashire, just north of Burnley, on the, on the verge of the Yorkshire Dales. Lovely. Well, for reasons that we're going to get into, this is going to feel a little bit strange for Dave, who spends even more of his time these days on the other side of the mic. But first off, Dave, in terms of bike racing, I just wanted to ask, where did it all start for you? Was bike racing a family obsession when you were growing up? What sort of started the love affair? for you and are there any particular early memories of bike racing either on the telly or track side that kind of got you started on this love life of yours uh it started back when i was five or six years old i'm lincolnshire born and bred so my home track has always been cadwell park mm-hmm. and i clearly remember going to cadwell with um, my mum and dad to watch barry sheen and mick grant uh will hartog won a race there when we went and i must have been Six, seven, it was certainly very late 70s, I think, when they had the old guest races and mm-hmm. um, there were lots of brown envelopes coming around and start money and things like that. So you'd get all the GP riders there and there were some massive names at the time. And then I remember going to Mallory Park, watching Ron Haslam and then progressing through to the likes of Roger Burnett, Roger Marshall. Rob McKelney was from just down the road from us. So he was a huge uh, legend of the area and a big hero of mine growing up. And then it just progressed from there to watching British Championship racing, to watching 500 GPs at the time. We were at the first World Superbike race at Donington Park with Fred Merkel and Davide Tardotze. Yep. Joey Dunlop was there. Roger Burnett was in that one as well. Virginio Ferrari, mm, Raymond totally. Roche. That's some ah, names. Just, <laughs> yeah, some names going back there. But then kind of working in shift work, didn't get the chance to attend as many rounds as I can. So it was mainly just TV in the early 2000s. And then we kind of picked it up a little bit after that with the birth of my daughter. We went on a regular basis. She adored it. The birth of social media meant that I got talking to a few people and the rest, as they say, is kind of history. Depends how deep you want to dive, really. Well, yeah, because I mean, I grew up on a sort of steady diet of Formula One in the, I suppose, the late 70s and the early 80s. And my earlier recollections personally of bike racing would have been on the TV. And it would have been around the time the JPS Nortons became quite famous nationally. I mean, it was pre what we call British Superbike now. It was called the F1 category, I think, back in those days. Uh, there was Superbike, Super Cup, TT Formula One. There was all different versions of what is now yeah. the British Superbike Championship. Quite different disparate wasn't it all the different categories i mean for british listeners this won't translate so well for people elsewhere in the world but we had a show called grandstand back in the day didn't we in world of sport and we used to see things like the transatlantic races for example oh, well as, incredible yeah they were brilliant weren't they? i mean i very much remember it would have been kevin schwantz and probably that would have been fred merkel as well battling out in the transatlantic races around places like donington park and that must have been early 80s i guess 
Yeah, early to mid 80s, when the time that Wayne Rainey and Kevin Schwantz came across. And before that, Mike Baldwin, Freddie Spencer, Kenny Roberts, Randy Mamola. It was just such, you can't imagine that happening now, where you've got the big American contingent coming over on their factory machines, on their Texaco Heron Suzuki's and their factory Yamahas against the likes of the, the Rothmans Hondas and Rob Mack and, and the guys mm. from the UK. It was just, when, when you actually look back into it and looking at start money, and it, it was was made for TV. There was no doubt about it. And it yeah. was such a spectacle and made for the spectators as well. It made for some fantastic racing. And Freddie Spencer's first win in the UK came at, I think that came at Brands Hatch, if I remember right. But it was our first chance to see some of the young Americans and the GP riders all come into our shores. Yeah. I'm going off track already. But Off track. Nice plug. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. We'll get to that. Um- <laughs> <laughs> that, that will become clear in a little while listeners no i was just going off script a little bit I'm, I'm wondering if you lament like i do the fact that riders are so tied into particular championships contractually nowadays and you don't get people kind of crossing into different formulas very often like they used to do in the old is that a good or a bad thing in your view um i think it was of its time you know it's all in the name of progress isn't it also the different rules how things have changed with electronics with tires you know, if they run more Dunlops and Michelins in Moto America and we run Pirellis, there's so much has changed within the machinery and what they use that it just wouldn't work on any level. Yeah. Let's say it was of its time as the championships were before they became what is now the British Superbike Championship, Moto America, or before that, the AMA Championship. Yeah. It's right for them to be championships in their own right. It would be nice, yeah, but it, it was of a time and it's not something that I often think about about now because it can't happen yeah now delving into the old archive like i did with martin i was looking back and i noticed that you first appeared on the pod bearing in mind we're up, going to be up to 684 we're going to record a show jim and i tonight so you first appeared on episode 377 i think it uh, was. i was going to go 373 i wasn't far yeah well, I'm pretty sure I'm right on that. I mean, I could be wrong. No, I'm sure you I'm are. just looking at the show notes. but And that was on the 28th of August, 2013. That's correct. And prior to that, I think I'm right in saying that you were active or involved in some capacity anyway on another podcast called Paddock Chatter. Is yeah, that Yeah, but that wasn't, no, that wasn't a podcast. That was a Twitter feed. Ah, right. It was set up by uh, a good friend of mine in Cheshire uh, called Tim. And he basically set up Paddock Chatter as a, what would it be? The whole social media media was very very different back then and Twitter was a fantastic place to be to, uh, as a bike fan because everybody was accessible it hasn't become the the difficult place that it is today the, yes. you could still have a conversation yeah nicely chosen words you could access the riders you could access people like Charlie Hiscott and Ian Wheeler and riders Stuart Higgs the director of British Superbikes so there's always an in with people and you could do little what they call Tim started twin interviews which were little questions that you could do questions and answers. Okay. Um, I remember doing them with Josh Brooks and other riders. And then it just developed from there. A guy called Matt Dunn came in, who is now or was lead social media guy at Dorna for MotoGP. Yeah. If ever the guys and girls listening see MotoGP and they see um, a bespectacled guy with big, almost Leo Sayer kind of hairdo hanging around on the grid, that's Matt Dunn. How did you get involved in Motopod then? Was it just a natural progression? How did that happen? Uh, yeah. 
one of the guys that I spoke to quite regularly on Twitter was a guy called Wiggy Sam, who is still around now from Leeds. And Motopod were looking for a new host. And Wiggy Sam said, well, Dave's doing quite a bit. He knows his stuff. So why not give him a try? He put me in touch with Jim Race, mm-hmm. who was sort of heading the podcast at the time. God bless him. Yeah. And brought me in, had a chat and said, how do you fancy it? I'm like, mm, okay. I've never done anything like this before. I've never spoken about my passion in any way. I'd only just got around to writing blogs and just chatting with people on social media. And he said, good. He said, well, I want you to go down to Silverstone and interview Jorge Lorenzo for us. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) No pressure. It was supposed to be Martin Darlington that was going down and he couldn't make it. So he said, yeah, if you can do that and we'd like you to come on as a a regular host. I was like, wow. (laughs) Okay. So that was my first gig with Motopod interviewing. And I think we got Danny Kent while we were down there and somebody else. Might have been Keith and Julian, but that might have been at a later date. I can't remember. But certainly Jorge Lorenzo was my first ever gig in any way, shape or form. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so that must have been a bit of a buttock-clenching exercise, I'd imagine. We'll perhaps come to that a little bit later on. But because uh, sure. something I mentioned to Martin, as you may have heard on the show that we put out, was looking back through the archive, how much interview work you guys did and how much access you had into the various paddocks at that time. So, I mean, that's something we're going to try and do a little bit better on the show going forward from here. Now, you stayed on the show until up around about the end of the 2018 racing season, I think. So, was there any particular reason why you decided to part around that time? Um, Motopod burnout? (laughs) Um, that's a great question. I think with all the shows that we've done over the years, I think I originally stepped back in 16 and then came back with Andy Course. Yes, yeah. Which might have been 17. He, he sort of cajoled me into coming back because they were missing that British superbike angle, mm. which was my passion. Martin was absolutely fantastic at MotoGP. As much as I enjoyed it, I kind of spread myself a little more thin with MotoGP Worlds and BSB plus its support classes. Mm. But because we were going on a regular basis from, I think, 2013, there were very few races we missed. I was in the paddock and it was we were able to bring news direct from there and get the interviews as well. The access in the BSB paddock, as, as you're finding out, is yeah. it's an open book. But for MotoGP, it's a completely different kettle of fish. It's a very different way of getting to the riders through the PR people, making appointment weeks in advance and having to purchase credentials to get into the event in the first place. So it's big, big effort to do the MotoGP interviews. World Superbikes, Dawn are fantastic at world level. Michael Morrell will look after anybody who comes in at World Superbike. You just make the necessary appointments. You can tap people on the shoulder and it's an easy way to do it. But literally BSB is as easy as turning up at an awning and going, can we sit down and talk about you for half an hour? To which most riders will go, absolutely. Any publicity is good publicity, as they say. It's exactly that. And I mean this with all the best intentions. There's nobody better to talk about themselves than a motorcycle racer. I'm struggling. (laughs) I'm using the other side of the fence. So it's unusual for me. But yeah, any motorcycle racer will sit and talk about themselves for half an hour. And that's the joy of podcasts and interviews. Yeah. Now, I was thumbing back through my diary and it occurred to me that I first met you, as in in person, 
back at a rather, as I recall, cold and damp Donington Park in March of 2015. And at that time, as well as your Motopod activities, and I think, as you said, you were working for Express Coffee, would it have been perhaps around that time? Yeah, I mean, well, that goes back to pre-Motopod with Chris at Express Coffee. That came through Paddock Chatter, doing articles on the website for Chris's supported riders. Right, okay, because I remember at that time, something else that you were involved with was rider management and representation for example, Jordan Weaving, who's still active in the paddock at the moment. So how did that come about? I mean, I'm sorry, but hopefully you're not prying too much into your no, affairs here, but that's possibly an aspect of what you used to be involved with. I'm assuming you're not so much involved in that kind of thing nowadays, but probably the older listeners to the show wouldn't necessarily have been terribly well aware of at the time. No, that came, again, that was partly with Chris from Express Coffee involved in it. And all this time, we have to remember, I'm still holding down a full-time job of 12-hour shifts and uh, balancing at well at that time 2015 I was also balancing a separation and a divorce and the whole family side of things so it was yeah. uh, a, a difficult sort of time but yeah again it goes back to Twitter Elaine Bergman dropped me a message on Twitter back in 2013 and said look there's a, a kid from South Africa coming across to race in the British Championships in the 125s as it was then would you mind just popping your head around the awning and just saying hello and becoming a friendly face and I said no no absolutely no problem at all and that's where the friendship with Jordan Weaving, his dad, Colin, mum, Vanessa, and his brother and sister, Paige and, uh, and Reese. that's where the friendship came from. So we were looking after him. I was doing his press releases and helping him out as a mate more than anything and making sure he had everything he wanted. And then they said, well, you know, will you step on board as management, which was early 2014. That was announced at Snetterton. We sorted his ride out for the following season at Russo Racing to which he then went on to win the championship with them in 2016. So Jordan became Motostar champion in 2014, stepped up to stock six in 15 and then won it in 16. So it was a quite a fruitful relationship. Yeah. And then at the same sort of time, 2015, I was approached to do a similar sort of job with Josh Elliott, the Northern Irish rider who was in stock thousand. And it was a similar setup doing his PR and anything around that him and his dad wanted me to do. That came courtesy of, of a recommendation from Ian Wheeler. So very grateful for that for getting me on the ladder as well yeah and then josh went on to become stock thousand champion in 2015 he says thinking back quickly that's a few years ago now time flies yeah jordan was champion in 14 josh champion for morello kawasaki in 15 so i'm kind of reading between the lines a bit here though but josh went up to the bsb part of the series with omg so is that kind of how you first got involved with that team on a sort of a more formal basis that's exactly how it happened. Right. Um, so I'd finished working with Jordan after 2016. He went on to a, a different path with somebody else. I continued with Josh, still working full-time in the packaging industry. And 2018, Josh, he started at Morello, but couldn't get on with the Kawasaki, then moved to the OMG racing team who were in their infancy at the time. Mm. They had Ben Luxton originally as their stock thousand rider. Ben was inexperienced and not ready for the thousand CC machine. So he dropped down to stock six and Josh took his place, took the team's first ever win in any competition down at Thruxton in the August and was then promoted to the Superbike team for 2019. Hmm. Won the opening race of the season after Taron McKenzie, which even Alan Gardner, the boss, will say, you know, it's a win, but it's not a crossing the line first kind of win. So they've still got the trophies. They still got the points, but he's still searching for that elusive first win in British Superbikes, which I'm sure we'll come on to later. That that is likely to happen this year. Yeah. So after that, 
that, things went a bit pear-shaped for Josh through the season for whatever reason. And he parted company with the team at the end of the season. And like a bad smell, I hung around and I'm still here now. So bring us up to speed then, Dave, in terms of what is it you're currently doing in the BSB paddock now? And I guess this is a one of those kind of dream stories where you start off around the edges of things and find yourself ultimately with a, what I guess you might class as a bit of a dream job. Tell the listeners what you're doing. But yeah, no question at all. It, it, sometimes I still sort of sit there now and, and last season been like, hmm, I, should I really be doing this? How did that happen? Uh, yeah. So it's almost like having a an eight-year or nine-year apprenticeship <laughs> before somebody actually goes, do you know what? You could do this full time. And it was a call from Alan Gardner of OMG Racing who, who said to me for the, the couple of seasons before, he said, you will come and work for me one day. And I'm like, okay, that's brilliant. Great. If that happens, then I'll be over the moon. But until then, you know, kind of thank you. And I was originally taken on to do a different project for Alan that is still ongoing at the moment. There was some unforeseen bumps in the road with the the project that they took me on for. And then later in 2021, later last season, they parted company with their PR and social media guy guy called Sam Walker. And I said, well, look, if that other project isn't happening, let me step in and do this. And I'll be your your social media and PR guy until you can find someone who knows what they're doing. So, so I've never really yeah, operated on the front line as such, but coming straight in as a superbike PR and social media, I've done a little bit for Russo Racing. I've done a little bit for a couple of the riders, but never actually putting things out there for a superbike team. So that was how the 2021 season panned out. Cadwell was my first full weekend with the team and then all the way to the end of the season. So it was not quite a baptism of fire, but there's nobody to tell you how to do it. Mm. So you kind of just, I know my audience because my audience is me. The British Superbike demographic, I think it's widely accepted is kind of 30 to 60 age group, something like that. Yeah. And they're just so incredibly knowledgeable as fans. So you, you don't talk down to them. You don't need to oversimplify things. It's not a casual audience that are reading my tweets. So it was knowing the right pictures to put out, knowing the right wording, putting out some little references to the fact that I'm maybe older than some of the PR guys in, in pit lane, that's for sure. Mm. Uh, and it went from there so through the winter we've carried on with the socials part of the project will come to shortly as well is the off-track side of things yeah I was going to say at this point, we must give a shout out to your solo podcast, let's call it Dave. So it's called Off Track. I can thoroughly recommend it. I'm sure a lot of the people that listen to Motopod will already be subscribers to that. And you started that in June 2020 and it's sponsored by Rich Energy, isn't it? So again, I'm guessing that that link all came around kind of this thing that we've been talking about with Josh and you getting involved with the OMG team and the fact that Rich Energy is their sponsor. So how did that come about? I mean, was it part and parcel of the same gig or they just happened to be separate things that have some commonality between them? It started off as a, a lockdown project, as a lot of things have done over the last couple of years. We were looking for things to do. I was still working full time because I was in manufacturing and we didn't stop. So yep. it, with no racing until later in the year, we decided to, I enjoyed doing Motopod. I enjoyed every show that I did, whether it was with Martin, with Jim, with Jules. I did a hundred and some odd shows with Harry Lloyd mm. that you know we kind of steered the ship for the best part of a year or so with myself, Harry and Martin and then later with Andy Course who was a, a great co-host to have on as well uh, I must give it give a shout out to Andy because he brought me back into the fold of podcasting yeah and I thought Do you know what the, the one thing that I kind of struggled with Motopod is it wasn't mine 
It wasn't mine to steer in the direction that I wanted and to be able to use that as a vehicle to make steps into motorcycle racing more. It has helped me along the ladder without a shadow of a doubt, but to be able to develop it, to help it grow and rather than just organically, it wasn't mine to do that with. Whereas with Off Track, you know, we post it in in a lot of Facebook groups. I can grow the audience. I choose who I want on. I choose when it goes out and the style in which I do it. Yeah. One thing I do miss is a regular co-host because we are doing interviews on a more regular basis. It does sometimes help that, I mean, not so much during the off season because there isn't a huge amount to talk about, but during the season, it'd be nice to do a show early part of the week to discuss the weekend's action. Mm. And that may, we we are looking at the format for the coming season to maybe up the number of shows. I was going to say, one of the things that's really great about the show up until now, at least, is the fact you don't really talk about races that have happened or races that are coming up as a rule do you you generally have top level guests on and i was going to ask you are there any particular highlights and i'm not going to go through all the people that you've had on because it's a, a big list already but are there any particularly memorable people that you've had on the show in terms of pointing people that haven't necessarily listened to off track at a particular episode from the back catalog Something I've been very, very fortunate with, and I have a lot of gratitude to Motopod for, was putting me in touch with some incredible people. In my time at Motopod, when you look at the people that I was so fortunate to interview, it still to this day blows my mind. Freddie Spencer and Neil Hodgson coming on two or three times, and Carl Fogarty, Alex Briggs, such a a massive range of names, down to Glenn Irwin as he was a Stock Six champion. Key farmer, you know, interviewing these guys before they made it big and making sure, as I'm sure we'll come on to, keeping an eye on the younger talent in the British paddock. But I think I enjoy every, I know it, it's cliched, if I'm allowed to swear, it's a bit of bullshit. It's every guest has their own merits. I haven't come off a show thinking, hmm, that wasn't quite what I, I know my guests and I know that certain guests have certain characteristics. So they're not going to be effervescent and buoyant. And they do have slightly different ways of portraying what they're thinking and saying. So yes, there have been more entertaining podcasts, but I enjoy every guest and I'm grateful for their time. I certainly think a couple of the recent ones I've thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, I know you haven't listened to it yet, but the latest one with Matt Roberts has gone down incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, the Eurosport British Superbike and World Superbike presenter. The week before, talking to Sam Yassin and Davey Todd about a rider and coach connection and Davey talking about losing his best friend, Daley Matheson, at the 2019 TT. Mm-hmm. So it's Scott Ogden last year and we've had Steve Day on. Like you say, it's difficult to list everybody, but everybody's been on for a reason. Yeah. And those reasons have all been justified. Leon Camier is another one who was you know, very kind to talk to us just after the World Superbike round at Donington Park. And he was a dream. You know, he's a Honda man through and through. His answers were exactly what I expected. So he was as honest and as open as he could be. And then what we did at the bike show, just tapping people on the shoulder. We got six or eight riders there. And that was just wandering around the show going, will you talk to me? And they go, Dave, yeah, no problem. That goes again, I suppose, to what you're saying about the BSB paddock, which is that it's relative to other places. It's so open and people are, as a rule, just super friendly, aren't they? And and very inviting of, of that attention. It's very, very few people will say, unless you pick the wrong time. I can't think of any rider that wouldn't come on. And that goes for the Superbike boys as well. Yeah. I can't think of any rider that wouldn't come on a podcast to talk about their season. As long as you, you pick the right time to speak to them. It took us all season to get Rory Skinner on. And 
and Lee Jackson, but they're mm. a captive audience at the show. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. They, can, <laughs> they can't run away. And, and I'd much rather do, I know for the purpose of this chat, it's the easiest way to do it and through the winter. But as it showed with Matt Roberts last week, it's so much easier to do these conversations in person because they go down a different route mm. and you feel the vibe with that person and you, you can kind of probe it a little bit more. It's not talking to your webcam. You sat there and as you'll hear on the show, it, it flowed so very well. So I much prefer to do them in person. But- yeah. You know, it needs most, unfortunately, with the Zoom. One of the reasonably recent shows that I will thoroughly recommend to people if they want to touch in for the first time. And that was that, in fact, it was such a long show. It was split over two episodes. And that was your chat with Terry Reimer, <laughs> which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Because it's great when you talk to the guys that aren't actively racing anymore. If you get to talk to them about what it was like in the 70s and the 80s, let's say, in the case of Terry. Fascinating to hear about all the stories of how things used to be. I'm not saying it was better. I'm not saying it was worse. You know, it was just no, dif- no, it's it was a just different, different story from a different time. Yeah. And and Terry was over the moon to come on the podcast. And I think the grand total of time we spent on Skype was three hours. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were chatting about things before the show, chatting about things after the show. Steve Sawford was another one, the X250 British champion. Yeah, excellent. You know, I'd love to go down that road a little bit more with the likes of Nigel Bosworth and Mara Brown and Jay Vincent. Trying hard to get Jamie Robinson on, who was a huge 250 star back in the in the mid-90s and in the early 2000s with Rob Mack yeah. on the Virgin Yamaha. And he just, it's trying to get those boys in and keeping the other guys relevant as well and then we need to be telling the story of the season for the 2022 season coming up because i tell you this now in true moto pod style it's going to be the best season ever. <laughs> well, we're going to come to I was just going to say, just as a little footnote to what we were saying there, for old giffers like us that have been in and around the paddocks and certainly watching and just being so thoroughly invested in bike racing for old so giffers, many years. We are the same age. Yeah. <laughs> we're absolutely the same age. We are old giffers. You it's wander around true. the paddock, don't you? And for example, somebody like Matt Llewellyn, you'll see Spanner in or, or well, more yeah, he's Spanner. crew chief at FS3 Racing, yeah? But yeah, you'll see these faces and think, bloody hell, you know, I used to watch that guy week in, week out on the telly at the BSB races and so it's amazing how these people stay in the paddock and so it's a sort of it's what do you call it a rich scene to mine isn't it in terms of oh, no talking question. to these people absolutely more people than time no question at all yeah and when you go into the support paddock as well there's x racers in there and yeah. you know ian locker and people like that who we had on at donington park their history in the sport is just incredible i guess with those guys it can be more a case of what stories they can actually tell rather than the ones that they just can't do it <laughs> because of and how much they remember as well as we've done a couple of times you'll tell one story which triggers another one and then they'll message you a couple of days later and go oh i meant to tell you about that why didn't i think about that and it's just a trip down memory lane the show isn't about me the show is about the guest and the less they hear from me the better the longer the stories i like terry did such a great storyteller as was steve sawford the younger guys don't have that ability just yet. They haven't developed that personal side of things where they can tell a story. Some of them haven't got stories to tell too much yet. Younger riders, your Charlie Nesbitts and people like that, Dan Jones, who are fantastic young riders, but they haven't developed their storytelling because they're still experiencing those stories, if that makes sense. As a counterpoint to talking to the older riders, you know, who existed in a different time in terms of they could get away with more in terms of wild behaviour. There wasn't that kind of constant spotlight and expectation from a commercial point of view as to what was right or wrong to do. But you could take somebody such as Asher Durham, who you spoke with, who for a young guy, 
does have a hell of a story to tell for very particular reasons. And it was great to hear you get into the weeds with him on that from the point of view of some of the challenges that he's faced, given his background coming up through the ranks. I was so chuffed that Asher trusted me to have that conversation with him about racial equality in a motorcycle racing paddock. It was a tricky subject to do, but it was easy at the same time Mm. because I'm never, ever going to throw any guest under the bus in any way, shape or form, because it's not what I'm, I'm not doing it for sensationalism. There are things you can ask and there are things you can't ask. And once you understand where the boundaries are, then you just keep away from them. But Asher was very keen to let me do that conversation with him. And <laughs> the circumstances were a little bit difficult after he'd uh, spanned himself in, uh, in Wales. Yes. Um, yeah. On his mountain bike. And then we were up at, uh, at Pete Bowes Champions Flat Track School. So my car became the uh, the off-track studio. <laughs> and I was chuffed to bits that. And the response that we got from it is exactly what we wanted. From the outset of the conversation, all we wanted was for one person to change their perception of what they thought life was in the paddock for Asher. Or one person to go, ah, now I understand. Mm. Didn't need any more than that. Just one person to understand what was being said. And we got far more than that in the end. So absolutely grateful to Asher Durham for that. He's such a great kid, such a good rider. Yeah. And looking forward to seeing what he can do this year back in junior Superstock. Absolutely. Part of the reason why I want to get much more interview activity back onto Motopod is because the problem with bike racing in a way is that other than that 10 minutes that you see people on the grid, once the crash helmet's on, you can't really interact with the person, can you? And, and it's such no. a human interest. All sport is human interest. But to really kind of talk to people like you've been doing, and as I plan to do more and more, and, and understand their backgrounds and what their motivations and frustrations are. And, you know, the thing with Asher is great because you can see the demographic at a BSB meeting slowly starting to change. And the same goes for all the young ladies that are starting to appear and, and do really well in the BSB paddock and the World Superbike and elsewhere as well. But it's a slow process. But it's you can see it coming and people like Fei Ho, for example, really at the forefront and indeed your team with a couple of the announcements that you've made, which you might want yeah. to touch on actually as part of this whilst we're talking about it. But so the demographics and the whole equality question is absolutely right up there in BSB. And in a way, it frustrates me that it doesn't get more kudos for that sort of work that it's doing. It's still far too much of a niche kind of sport in terms of the overall public eye aspects of it for me, because uh, there's some great work going on. That's our job then, isn't it? it well, quite. That's our job to get word out there to the superbikes and motorcycle racing fans in general for the great work that Fayho's doing at FHO Racing and Stuart Higgs as well as series director to bring the girls into into the ladies, should I say, into the motorcycle racing and encourage them in what they're doing. That was another great show that happened at the back end of last year at Brands Hatch with Charlotte Marcuso, Holly Harris and Scarlett Robinson, who are the three FHO racing riders for 2022. And that was just fabulous. They were so nervous at the beginning. They'd never done anything like that before. But once they relaxed and you start taking the mickey out of them a little bit and you have finding a level with your interview victim... subject is (laughs) is so important and whether it's i go back through last year and there's so many good chats young guys like josh owens at cdh racing after he had his big crash at knock hill and smashed his hand you know we sat outside the the rich club and we did the uh, the podcast out there people can't hear it because we're recording into the machine but there's people walking past and looking and thinking what's he doing and Mm. telling his story as an ex gp2 champion the chat we had with jack nixon and scott swan jack 
Magnuson going on to be junior superstock champions for 2021 and a massive battle with Joe Talbot, who has also been on the show. These kids are so important to tell their story. You know, we've got Christian Idden later on today and guys that are riding in British superbikes, their story's been told so many times. But at least with Christian today, we've had the announcement of his um, his ride for 2022 finally. But to tell the story of the kids that are coming through and the characters that they have, Jack Nixon and Swanee were brilliant together because they're best mates in the paddock in different championships. They just bounce off each other and it's just, it shows the kids' character. Charlie Nesbitt, as we mentioned before, he's another one yeah. who I thoroughly enjoy talking to. And there'll be more coming through in uh, 2022. Reese Irwin, Kaylin Irwin, guys like that all need to be on the podcast. Yeah, because you're in this orbit full-time now. One of the things that Jim and I spoke about a fair bit in the latter part of last season with MotoGP in mind, or Moto3 in mind in particular, was, and, and I'm just interested in your view on this from a British racing perspective, is even though these are really young kids that are coming up through, the level is so high and the, the standards in the British superbike paddock in terms of the professionalism of the teams, the sort of equipment that people are running, you know, there aren't any slow people out there and there are no kind of half-baked outfits either, are there? Let's be quite honest. So do you ever get the sense or the fear that it's not enough fun for the young kids or do you just think it, they are just having the time of their lives? Oh man, they're having the time of their lives. You know, they're turning up at a race circuit. At any level of motorcycle racing, there's ups and downs. It doesn't matter if you're doing Bemsey or North Gloucester or if you're Fabio Quartararo in MotoGP, you know, and everything in between. Racing is ups and downs and how you deal with the ups is equally as important as how you deal with the downs. So, you know, the kids out there are absolutely loving it. Yes, there's a certain pressure to perform. I don't know whether the pressure is there quite as much now, Certainly now the age ranges are changing, which I know you've touched on before. Mm. So that kind of negates a lot of the pressure. Um, you're not going to get a Scott Ogden that's going to go and win the British Talent Cup and then go straight to the Sev in the Junior World Championship in the British Talent Team. That's not going to happen for a couple of seasons. So I think the pressure is off to rush to get to where we need to be. But there's, there's a lot of guys doing an awful lot of work behind the scenes, whether it be the guys at British Mini Bikes who are putting such a great series together Fab Racing still continues to churn out some incredible riders. Bradley Ray, Scott Redding, Charlie Nesbitt again, Fraser Rogers, Holly Harris. They're all Fab Racing graduates. And Chloe Jones is British mini bikes. There's guys coming through now into junior super sport. You know, they are living the dream. It might not be at the level that they would like. You know, we can't all be the next Mark Marquez and the, the pyramid becomes very steep the higher you go. But the fact that they are at a motorcycle racing circuit from Thursday to Sunday and get to race against people on average two races a weekend and track time and let's be fair that all motorcycle racers have an ego they have to to do what they do yes in point it's a team sport but when they're on that grid they're individuals and again that also how they deal with that <laughs> depending on how they deal with their ego depends on whether they come on my show or not because we want regular decent people yeah. and there are some that will learn over time that not quite as big as they think they are which it happens that's kids and there's no one in particular that comes to mind on that it's just that's nature if you get a hundred people there's going to be a small percent of them that are going to be idiots because that's just how life is that's life yeah yeah absolutely mm. and there's nobody in particular that i can even think of in my head at the minute it's just as a point of order for the podcast you know yeah. they're all there to do the same thing as a general rule and sorry to listeners who aren't british but with a slight british bias just for a moment given what we've seen in the international series over the last few years which is a, a real predominance of italian and particularly spanish riders super super 
super talented people who have done you know marvelous things and very very successful but given the sterling efforts that have gone on in the british championships and i'm not just talking about i mean you just mentioned you know british mini bikes for example or mini gp you've got the Avali series churning out people as well now are you as confident as i am that we've got quite a big torrent of british talent male and female coming through which will help to swell the numbers of british representation anyway on the world scene I think what Michael Laverty's doing with his Vision Track Academy is outstanding. There, with the almost the not the demise of the British Talent Cup, but with Dorna pulling the road to MotoGP from that, because for whatever reason, the British Talent Cup over the last couple of seasons have been populated by the younger riders. I think Casey O'Gorman won it. I think it was he 14, 13 mm-hmm. or 14, Casey. Um, so it, he's got a bit longer to wait before he matures into a Moto3 GP rider when Scott Ogden won it in 19. He was 15 going on 16, which is the perfect age. So the likes of Eddie O'Shea, Casey O'Gorman, and uh, Carter Brown, Evan Belford, and and guys like that, Johnny Garness, the the city lifting guys. But then you also have Jamie Lyons, who at six foot isn't going to be a Moto3 rider for much longer, who Mm. finished third on giving away half his weight and half his height to the likes of Johnny Garness, but still managed to win a race. So there's a huge amount of talent there. And it's the opportunity is in question the talent isn't in question it's the opportunity side of things that where the, the sort of questions are raised because the path isn't quite there anymore but when you look at what Vision Track Academy are doing with the likes of Harley McCabe who for me is one of the next big things coming through um, he will be a challenger for the Ponder British Talent Cup next season the opportunity now needs to arrive for him to be the next Scott Ogden so if you can be part of MLAB's Academy that is now your route potentially into MotoGP yeah. whether that pans out over because we're not even into their first season yet with uh, with Scott Ogden and Josh Watley two of the, the finest young British riders of that age group that are out there mm. where they can then fit into the the CEV side of things which has to happen our British Talent Cup isn't strong enough to see a rider win British Talent Cup whether it be Luca Hopkins whether it be Harley McCabe Casey O'Gorman whoever to then go straight into GPs it's just not there because we run customer NSF Hondas they need to go to Spain and run the GP versions of the bikes that they're going to run against the riders that they're going to be racing against so Scott Ogden has moved up with David Munoz and Daniel Holgado and Mario Aji and guys like that but he already knows what they're like Mm. we don't have that depth of field in the UK because of the cost implications of running those level bikes that's why BTC became what it did because the GP bikes were kind of too expensive to run it always strikes me as a very sort of incongruous situation that we have in Britain where so much of world motorsport is kind of based here in terms of the engineering and the R&D, let alone all the operational aspects of it. And yet we really struggle to support our drivers and riders in this particular case when it comes to the world stage. As you will have heard, I was lamenting with both Jim and when we had Greg on the show last week about the fact that even the British Superbike champion can't raise the funds to get across the world superbike. I mean, you do have to ask yourself, what the hell is going on there? Because it's a travesty, really, isn't it? It's a massive travesty. That particular subject maybe comes back to how some teams in uh, World Superbike and World Supersport are run. They don't have the funds to run and pay a rider. Mm. So if you're looking at an independent team in World Superbikes, World Supersport, there's every likelihood you're going to have to bring money and it does not matter who you are. That's how they run those teams. Good, bad or indifferent, that's not for me to say. Mm. So to move to a team, and I think for 
Taz, the right move is to stay in the British Championship. I fully believe that Toprak will move up in 23, 100%. And I can't see why he wouldn't, especially mm. if he wins back-to-back championships. Yeah. And then should a rider get promoted from the GRT team, there's a space for Taz there. Or to go straight into the factory Yamaha Crescent team, the Bricks Patter team. So it's going to do him no harm to wait another year. And it has to be the right move. And he's done it before. He moved to Moto2 and it didn't work. So he knows what it's like to move to a team. It's going to cost him money and not get the results that he wanted. So why not stay in the UK, have a big target on his back and have another fantastic season in front of the adult in British crowd. I mean, it's good for us, certainly. Absolutely. And it's good, good for Stuart Higgs and Jonathan Palmer to have the star man still in the series. So actually, that's a useful little segue. So if we look at the 2021 BSB season then, I mean, as we could be talking for four or five hours about what was good and what was bad because it's just such a strong series, such a variety of tracks, great races. But was there any one personal thing that kind of stood out last year in terms of the good side of things and then perhaps in terms of not the bad, but was there something that was particularly disappointing in terms of a rider or a thing that happened? anything spring to mind? I think the coming of age of Taz McKenzie was something a little bit special. He's always struggled at Alton Park. Alton Park is one of the big markers for British superbikes. If you can ride a British superbike around Alton Park to some success, you will be strong everywhere else, pretty much. It's such an iconic circuit. There's ups, downs. It's a proper roller coaster with tree lines and it's got a bit of everything. It's one of my favourite circuits to watch from never ridden it but to watch from it is just incredible it throws up so many different ways of riding a motorcycle and Taz has struggled for the last four seasons around Alton Park it was always his bogey circuit and when he nailed it in the showdown that was when everybody sat back and went he's going to win this because his teammate Jason O'Halloran wasn't putting the results together that he had done earlier in the season. Christian Idem was coming back from a big loss of form after illness and losing his granddad. And Tommy Bridewell just couldn't make the jump to close the gap enough on the podium credits that they accrued during the regular season. So to watch Taz, the determination that he had, and we don't know what injuries he had after that big crash at Silverstone with Jason. We don't know what injuries Jason had. They ain't going to tell anybody because... That shows weakness. And one thing that any rider will do is not show weakness in any way, shape or form. It's the old Monty Python thing, isn't it? With the knight when he cuts his arm and he's like, it's just a flesh wound. It's fine. It's no problem. That's all it is. Your arm's hanging off. doesn't matter. I've got another one. It's fine. And that shows the determination of every motorcycle racer I've ever known. But for Taz to do what he did, that was pretty special under the circumstances and the pressure of the showdown. So far as the other side of the coin, so disappointed for Jason O'Halloran and for Christian Iden after their early season performances, Jace winning three off the bat at Alton Park, which is, you know, that's no mean feat. And Christian mm. following him home in all three races. In fact, I think Christian led more laps over that weekend than Jason did. And he just sort of nipped by him in the closing laps, which yeah. was, was consummate professionalism from Jason. And Christian had no answer to him. Josh Brooks was a big disappointment for whatever reason that we We've never really got to the bottom of that the first two thirds of the season. Josh was nowhere near at the races and the rider that we know he is. Mm. But then, you know, he made it into the showdown because from, I think, Cadwell, Snetterton and Silverstone, he was the best point scoring rider of all the guys that were looking to jump into the showdown. And that final weekend of the regular season at Silverstone was, was just incredible. Never known anything like it. Looking at it from the garage with Brad Ray, who had his chances, he rode his cart out 
Lee Jackson rode his heart out, both of them to be pipped by Josh Brooks at the end. So it was an incredible season, as close to a regular season as we've had. Yes, there was a couple of back-to-backs, which made it difficult for everybody. It made it a very intense season. But we still had the showdown. We had a deserving champion. There are guys that have spent the winter licking their wounds and reflecting on what's going on. The grid still isn't completely formed for this season, which I'm sure we'll come on to shortly. So I thought it was a fantastic season. I thought the guy who won the championship was well-deserving. I thought the guy who finished second in the championship was an absolute revelation in Tommy Bridewell and the Oxford Products Ducati team. That was an immense effort from Tommy. For Jason to eventually finish third and Christian fourth makes it a very different story to what it was sort of halfway through the season. Yeah, I can't wait for 2022. It's going to be incredible. I suppose 2021 tells us everything that we need to know about BSB as a format and as a competitive series, doesn't it? In terms of the guy who you thought was going to run away with the championship, kind of his season went the exact opposite way to his teammate. I mean, love it or hate it, the showdown, and I'm a little bit on the fence with it. I mean, it works for some people and it doesn't work for some others, but I mean, it is the same for everybody and it's a well-established format now. So I think the grumbles have largely gone away, but you did have to feel for Jason O'Halloran, didn't you, really, in terms of how that all unfolded for him last year? You get the rule book at the start of the year, you know what's coming. You know what the rules and regulations are, and it's going to be a showdown. 2020 was an anomaly because of the late start and the pandemic hit season. And, you know, that was still a great year, and it was nice to have a regular championship. But when you look at the lead that Jason had after eight rounds, before they brought in the showdown points, he was, what was he, 100? 120, 110 points ahead, something like that. It was I forget the exact number. Yeah, It was a massive, massive gap that all he would have had to have done is manage it till the end of the season. Whether you like it or not, British Superbikes is in the entertainment industry and that's not going to be entertaining to watch someone manage a lead of that magnitude over the next nine races. So in the beginning, I wasn't a fan of the showdown, but now it's there. So you have to embrace it. It's not going anywhere. It makes for incredible racing. It puts unbelievable pressure on riders and teams and some riders react better to that than others and I don't expect the same thing to happen in 2022 to Jason O'Halloran that happened in 2021 whether he just succumbed to the pressure and just couldn't perform at the same level it was still the same motorcycle it was still the same circuit what were the three showdown rounds you had Alton Donington and Brands wasn't it had ridden on those already. Yeah. He'd already ridden on those tracks that season and had great results on them. So for that not to happen again was a massive disappointment for Jace. And outside entities for Christian, which kind of went against him a little bit that didn't help him ride at his full potential. But for me, it really shows character of riders when the showdown comes around. Maybe it wouldn't have affected Jason so much if he hadn't had such a big lead. You know, if it only been a 20-point lead or something like that, or a 30-point lead, mm. then it may not have had such an effect on him mentally but to have 70 odd points wiped out by the wave of a checkered flag yeah. you know it's an incredible situation to be in and not one that I don't know how I would fare in that well, I was just thinking, actually, it does raise an interesting question, in actual fact, just thinking about this in terms of the showdown has now forced riders, and I don't know how prevalent this kind of line of thought is in the paddock, but you really have to manage your whole season quite differently, don't you, in terms of your physical preparation, managing injuries or trying to stay injury free. And certainly from a sports psychology point of view, if you're in the position that Jason found himself in, like you say, Dave, where he had such a big lead, but everything to lose. And I mean, pretty much the whole thing unraveled in the first showdown race 
race at Alton Park, didn't it? Over the three races, he went from still clearly out front with his podium credits to thinking, oh, bloody hell, I think he's vulnerable here. And things just never really got back into gear for him, did they? So it does bring in, I suppose, in one positive aspect, you could say that the showdown does have a certain set of requirements on the riders in terms of how they manage their season and how they manage their sort of mental faculties isn't around the extreme pressure that that format brings. Oh, without a doubt. Now, there are two distinct parts to the season. There's the regular season and the showdown. Now, the regular season, you can, with consistency, you can be pretty much guaranteed a top eight place in British Superbikes by consistently finishing in the top six. Yes, I know that's like, duh. Yeah, of course that makes sense. It does, because the showdown rewards consistency. The showdown also rewards consistent podium finishes as well. So if you're on a factory bike and you're at a level of Jason O'Hall, Halloran and Taz McKenzie, Danny Buchan, uh, Glenn Irwin, the guys that you would expect to be in the top six in whatever order, Christian Hidden, Josh Brooks, all the, the factory riders, they should be part of the showdown just by consistency of finishing top six, top eight. But this is motorcycle racing. It doesn't happen like that. And you have injuries, you have mechanicals, there are all sorts of issues that can be set a motorcycle racer. But when that then changes into the showdown, and again, you have to be even more aware of taking your chances and avoiding injury. Taz was incredible in the showdown. He did not give a monkey's chuff what he what about anybody else but himself. And it showed with his coming together with Lee Jackson at Alton Park. You know, he put some hard passes on people, but that was a champion's ride in the showdown. Yeah. And he got the prize at the end of it, deservedly. If you take a step back in the showdown, you're going to get battered and you can't do that. You've got to go on the front foot. You've got to take the risk. It promotes risk-taking because the margins are so small with the points. Podium credits are out the window. A win's a win in the showdown. So those five points between first and second is a huge, huge step. And you need those if you want to become British champion. I suppose there are a few riders that groaned probably audibly when they found out that Taz was sticking around for 2022. So just looking forward, because as I always say on the show, when I'm interviewing people, I'm conscious of time. From your own point of view with the Rich Energy OMG racing team, I think I'm correct in saying, and this might not be common knowledge to all of the listeners, that you are now running Yamahas. And am I right in thinking it's the McCann bikes from last year, essentially? Yeah, no, you you would be absolutely correct. The switch from BMW to Yamaha has taken place. The boys had a test out at Cartagena a couple of weeks before Christmas in which Brad Ray dipped under the old lap record. Mm -hmm. The first rider to do um, a 131, 131.753, I think. And Kyle was only sort of half a second behind him. And they were that Brad was on Jason O'Halloran's bike from this year. Kyle was on one that McCam's Yamaha had kindly loaned the team for the test. Both riders stayed upright, neither rider crashed. They got some real useful laps in. The team were fortunate enough to have Yamaha technicians out there. Guys like Tim Seed, Chris Anderson, loaned courtesy of McCam's Yamaha and Raceways Motorcycles. How that translates into the new season remains to be seen. The Rich Energy OMG race racing team will be supported by Yamaha for 2022 so it's not just here are the Yamahas go play kind of thing we are we the team are a satellite Yamaha outfit Mm -hmm. so they will benefit from the support of raceways and from Yamaha 
whether how that supports Brad Ray and Carl Ride, they're both Yamaha boys through and through. They've both had some great successes on R6 machinery and they both took to the R1 really well. Mm. Uh, it's just like a big R6 to them. So I'm really excited to see those two boys get into the mix a little bit more as well. Challenge for showdown places. There are so many riders challenging for the showdown outside of the factory riders. There's going to be there's Brad and Kyle that'll be challenging. Dan Linfort moving to PR, BMW. He's got a huge huge amount of experience that will be knocking at the door the new rookies whether they'll be you know they need to get into the points first and build on what they're doing but the likes of Storm Stacy at, at GR Motorsports LKQ Car Parts Brent Gladwin's team he needs to be knocking on the door of the showdown now to be consistent top six top eight yep. um, is within his grasp and I think Lee Jackson will be looking to change that Rory Skinner will be looking to change that the two FS3 Kawasaki boys with yep. their new green white and blue livery that looks incredible Beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. And great also to see Chrissy Rouse coming up to BSB for a full championship tilt as well. Yeah, I mean, he should have gone up at the, the beginning of last year for me yeah. after winning the National Superstock Championship in 2020. It was a bit of a travesty that he didn't get a chance at a superbike ride. I truly believe that anybody who wins a championship over a BSB weekend should move up into the next class. How that's made to happen, I don't know. But, you know, that's got to be the goal. So how do you get to BSB otherwise? And bringing the youth through at the same time, which I know Stuart Higgs is absolutely on the front foot of doing doing when you see the likes of Dan Jones coming up this year and Liam Delves is starting Tom Neve there's some great opportunities for some real fast youngsters and people like Jack Nixon Charlie Nesbitt Joe Talbot waiting in the wings over the next two or three seasons so there's a huge amount of talent to come obviously you've got your team hat on almost literally not that people can see that because we're podcasting but he's got the jacket on my hat is Oliver Brindley who was also interviewed on Motopod as well the same weekend that Lee Jackson was right okay talking about I'll say your team Obviously, it's impossible to put you on the spot and say, who do you think is going to do better out of Brad and Kyle? I think what I will say as an impartial observer is that they are both riders that have shown such mega form sporadically in the past that I am really very, very excited to see how they get on, both of them, on the Yamaha. So it's going to be a fascinating season ahead just with those two guys to see if they can consistently perform at those the levels that we've seen them do on other bikes with other teams in the past. They have, they have a couple of decent performances last season as well Dave I think it's fair to say but as you say it's all about consistency isn't it BSB 100% I mean they're both British Superbike race winners in their own right on different manufacturers for whatever reason the BMW M1000 RR just didn't suit them they couldn't get the best out of the bike and in turn get the best out of themselves and you know it was a difficult season for both of them but you know we've got two podiums for Brad Ray at Donington Park and Alton Park and we've finally got car ride on the podium at Donington towards the end of the season Yeah, and obviously we've got to say a big Thank you to Billy McConnell, who finished runner-up in the Stock 1000 series as well in such a hotly contested championship. Uh, he finally got his win at the last round of the season because I don't think he'd ever gone through his career in Britain without winning at least one race. So mm. a lot rested on that final race at Brands Hatch. He needed a lot to happen to Tom Neve at Honda for Billy to lift the crown, which Tom's a great rider with Harv Beltran behind him and guiding him. So it was unlikely after 2020 that Tom was going to let that slip out of his grasp after he spun out on the first corner with the challenge against Chrissy in 2020 so yeah but it's motorcycle racing anything can happen so Billy had a great season as well 
Yeah, and as you just said, Dave, at least in this particular case, Tom does get up to BSB as the reigning stock thousand champion, as it should be. Agreed. That's a great shout from Har Beltran. He rode for the team, I think, was it 2015 or 2016? He had a bit of a cameo for them at Cadwell Park on the, the superbike. So Harp's kept an eye on him for quite a while. And both Tom and Tim are fantastic riders, and they will be a force in British superbikes over the next three or four seasons of that, I'm absolutely sure. Yeah. Okay, we're going to work towards wrapping it up. Just a couple of little lighthearted things. So is there a particular best Motopod memory or memorable interview or a cock-up, something that didn't quite go right that you can remind us of and (laughs) we can go back and laugh at? My first interview with Freddie Spencer was a bit special. That was something that that even today, 90 minutes chatting to Freddie about his career and his life story. A great chat with Alex Briggs, as we said before, that was Mm. a great one. Jorge Lorenzo was fantastic. Maybe not my finest hour because I'd never recorded anything done anything but how he was with me after the interview was exceptional really put me at ease we sat and looked at videos of Cadwell Park on uh, on YouTube and oh, he wow. was blown away by that and then uh, one of the funny memories that I have I think it might have been on his fourth appearance Neil Hodgson was a was a fair regular on the show with me as a, a lot of the long-term listeners will remember mm. and one day we did a bit of a phone-in and I've got a couple of fake listeners to write in a couple of questions and then I said well actually what we're going to do we're going to go to the phones and we've got a, a live caller is that all right and he went yeah dave no problem at all so brilliant so we threw to this caller and i don't know how i managed it with technology and everything else but the caller came in and uh, he literally said he said i've got a question we put it. the guy put on this irish accent and he said uh, why were you so slow in moto gp <laughs> And Neil was like, what? He says, well, you won the World Superbike title and you went off and, and you were a bit slow in MotoGP. Why was that? And you just couldn't hear him just try and find the words to answer <laughs> the question. Uh, and it turned out that, that I'd hooked up Steve Day, the uh, the World Superbike commentator, to drop in and have a chat with him at the same time. And I think it's the first time I've had my parenthood questioned live on a, <laughs> on a podcast. So that was great fun to do. I thought, who else? I think, yeah, generally speaking, all the hosts I've worked with, whether it's Martin and Jules and Jim and Harry, Andy Course, your fine self as it is now, um, and Skylar as well, who was on previously. It just a look back on the Motopod days very fondly because they helped me get where I am now. It was an integral part of what I do and knowing the riders and the people. It's been a continuation where we've ended up at Rich Energy OMG Racing and with the, the off-track podcast. Yeah. Oh, well, it's brilliant, Dave. I mean, you've done so well. It sounds a very patronising thing to say, but it's just no, great you. to see where you started off with the pod and your tweeting before that with Paddock Chatter and stuff and where you've got to now. It's like a sort of a dream scenario, really. It's, it's fantastic. I'm going to put you on the spot with a couple of things. <laughs> Is there a race or a venue on the bucket list? Um, Phillip Island. Phillip Island's got to be on the bucket list. Maybe Cota as well for the party in Austin sort of on the same weekend. But certainly Phillip Island has to be there without a doubt. I think I'd probably have that one on mine as well. And you will have heard this now because this is my little sign-off question. So you've had a little bit of time to think about this. So there's no excuses. Any ride or any bike, any track, what would you like to see? Well, I I listened to your chat with Greg Haynes this morning and he bought himself so much time when you asked him that question. He was like, yeah, but um, well, now, and I'm like, come on, Greg, you know. Struggling. And (laughs) two of Greg's answers were exactly where mine were going to be. He chose Mark Marquez and Hockenheim Mm. aboard the 2014 RCV. And I'm like, okay, well, that's two of my choices gone. So I will change mine to Mark Marquez on an NSR 500 at Monza. 
You'd have your hand hovering over the clutch lever on that one, wouldn't you? Just imagine Mark Marquez drifting around the parabolica. Oh, Curva Grande. Uh, yeah. Just, I can't imagine failing that Casey on the Ducati around Monza to do the Italian thing. So yeah, for me, and I know he said about Toprak on a MotoGP bike at Oliver's Mount, but have you ever been to Oliver's Mount? Do you know, I, ha- I never actually have. No, I must get to that one year. Mate, you don't want to ride anything more than a 600 round there. <laughs> we'll push bike. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got a kitchen table that's wider. We drove around it last weekend, actually. We were up there to see uh, our good friend, Sean Dalton, who's um, the chairman of the, the Marshalls Committee, and he basically looks after Oliver's Mount. He lives on the house on the circuit. And we had a ride round, and it, it just... I can't imagine what it was like back in the 70s with Ago and Yaro Saarinen and, and people like that coming forward. Guys like Mick Grant were there, Wayne Gardner, have been there it was mm. so steeped in history it's incredible yeah and i'd love to see racing back there again sometime when we don't know but hopefully soon hopefully it'll come back dave where can people find you and i guess you probably want to shout out for the team as well in terms of social media where do people find out what's going on well you can find the podcast if you just search for off track podcast we're on instagram twitter and facebook myself dave neil i'm on twitter facebook instagram as the dave neil and of course the rich energy omg racing team just search for them across twitter instagram and facebook and it'll be me tweeting across all three of those platforms for all three of those people. Yeah, pressure's on. And uh, provided it's okay, perhaps we'll have a mid-season catch-up if that's possible, perhaps a slightly shorter talk. Delighted but, to. Um, and if I bump into you in the paddock, you know, I might stick the old microphone under your nose and just get a little soundbite or two, depending on what's going on that particular weekend. It'll be great to keep in touch. But uh, I suppose, really, it remains for me just to say, Dave, it's been an absolute blast having you back on the show. I know the listeners, particularly the long-term listeners, will be absolutely delighted to hear those dulcet tones again so (laughs) sir thank you very much indeed for your time and we wish you and the omg team all the success this coming season thank you rich now thank you for the invitation it's been an absolute pleasure i can't believe how time's flown to see it from this side of the fence of how quick time passes with an interview i think it's only the the third one i've ever done i think where i'm the subject but thank you mate i I really appreciate it and it's great to be back on motopod and uh Long may it continue with yeah. many more episodes to come. And yes, absolutely, in the paddock next season. Yeah, I'm not at this point 100% sure where I'm going to be and what I'm doing, and not in a negative sense. At this point in time, I will be with Rich Energy OMG Racing. If not, I'll still be in the paddock and we'll still be at the TT and the Isle of Man with the team. So yeah. We're just waiting on a phone call to see if there's another opportunity. But if that doesn't materialise, then yeah, I'll still be with the team. I'll still be in the garage and my face buried in a phone. Yeah, um, <laughs> the usual. And off track will continue uh, just building and building, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that, sir. And uh, we'll catch up with you again. Brilliant. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, everybody. All the best.